gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Neuro. We're doing World Discussion with Adrian Smith once again. It is December the 15th, 9 p.m. Seattle time, 11 something p.m. Texas time. And we are here to figure out what is going on in the world and what has happened in the past that is shaping the present and maybe some predictions about what could happen in the future. Welcome, Agent Smith. How are you doing this week? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm pretty solid. It's been a, a nice week for me so far. I've had more of a normal human schedule, which is kind of unusual for how my rhythm tends to go sometimes, you know, like waking up before noon and then going to bed when it's dark out. Can you imagine? So adjusting then. Yeah. I don't know how long it's going to stay like that, but for now I'm kind of enjoying being able to see the sun. That can be good. Mm -hmm. So some things that jumped out at me from these past two weeks, because last week I was asleep all of Sunday evening when we normally do this. Iran was a big deal, I think. Lots of protests, uh, sanctions and stuff. It seemed like things were hitting a sort of critical mass in a way. Not really. Not really? <laughs> no. I didn't even put it in my notes. Now, what happened in Iran is that uh, the government cut fuel subsidies. Uh, so I think it was like a 50% hike in the price. And uh, that always sets people off pretty much. I mean, a, a number of the protests around the world over the past 10 years have been related to cuts to fuel subsidies. That was one of the contributing factors to the Arab Spring, if I recall. Um, other than, you know, the guy burning himself to death in protest, that obviously was sort of the genesis of the Arab Spring. But uh, economic pressure uh, was affecting a number of uh, governments' finances, and a lot of them had to cut fuel subsidies and food subsidies as well. And uh, that pressured budgets in a number of countries and aggravated the population, a lot of which didn't really think very highly of their governments anyway. So uh, that's pretty much what's happening in Iran. Uh, the government's finances are under pressure, obviously, because of the sanctions. And uh, in order to try to ameliorate that, they tried, well, they have, they have cut uh, subsidies to fuel. And predictably, a lot of people were pretty upset about it. But I don't think it's going to be uh, like a real threat to the government. You know, generally, protests regarding fuel subsidies are kind of a flash in the pan. You know, they start up and they'll last for a while and then they just kind of fizzle out. And if it's an authoritarian government, then they generally just write it out. If it's a more democratic government, uh, they might come to some kind of agreement to reverse the fuel subsidies, mitigate them, or uh, maybe try to offset them somehow with some uh, tax breaks for the people who are most vulnerable to them. Uh, but otherwise, generally they go through one way or the other. So I didn't really think much of it. It just kind of seemed like, okay, that's, that's not great for the government's legitimacy in Iran, but it's not really a backbreaker either. They'll probably just kind of sail through it. I did read some comments about this, and keep in mind this this is Reddit comments, so probably not the most top shelf advice or knowledge. But they were discussing how sanctions affect 
a government. And the highest voted one was something about how sanctions put pressure, generally speaking, on the lower and middle classes. They don't really affect the people who are in charge, but it ends up motivating them or at least making it more likely that they want to uh, push for some change, maybe regime change, maybe give the like alternative parties and stuff some more leverage to get power in their government and things like that. But it's kind of tricky because it doesn't usually directly punish the people who other governments are upset with. It's more of just putting pressure on the country as a whole, which eventually can lead to change, but it's pretty indirect pressure. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Uh, it's not really an economic tool so much as a political tool. You know, the idea is to undermine the popularity of the government and power uh, by attaching an economic cost uh, to supporting that government or to having that government be in power. So that can work if the government is very unpopular and there's an opposition that's strong enough to do something about it, uh, maybe to change the government uh, or at least to pressure it to significantly change its policies in a way that you as the sanctioning country uh, would like. But it can be a problem if, say, the government is explicitly authoritarian, in which case they'll generally just invest more in repression in order to try to uh, deflect any political pressure that may come from opponents. And uh, even if it's uh, not authoritarian, if uh, whatever opposition there is in a country maybe sees the pressure as being illegitimate, that is to say, sees the sanctions as an explicit attempt to influence policy, uh, they may resent that. You know, nationalists obviously are not really gung-ho about other countries messing around in their country's politics. So uh, it could be that sanctions uh, end up generating more blowback, that the, they end up creating solidarity in the target between the opposition and the government you're targeting, uh, such that the sanctions don't really do much. So, you know, obviously uh, Cuba, for example, is an authoritarian country. So uh, the sanctions there kind of mo impact the working class people and, you know, whatever middle class there is there, but uh, obviously don't really do much to undermine the government's authority uh, because they do have a pretty strong security apparatus there that can kind of handle uh, significant dissidents. Uh, Iran, in contrast, is kind of between those two examples. It's kind of, it has uh, the authoritarian regime in place that can suppress dissent, but it also has more legitimacy than a, an explicitly authoritarian regime like Cuba or uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, an absolute monarchy. Obviously, Iran is not a democracy. Uh, it's not uh, a free country per se, uh, but they do have uh, democratic institutions in place that do technically allow voting. You know, again, obviously the voting is not free and fair and uh, the candidates are vetted uh, by, uh, I think it's called the Guardian Council, where they, well, they don't pick and choose who runs, but of the people who decide to run, uh, they'll choose who can uh, be, blo they'll block some that they don't think should be allowed to run for election. And the result is that uh, the field of choices that you can vote for in a given election in Iran is winnowed down to people who are not a substantive threat to uh, the status quo. It sounds like what China does to me. Not, not really, because in China they don't really allow elections substantively. 
you can find example well i mean technically there are quote unquote elections but in a lot of the times it's like one candidate running uh, for the party there's actually more democratic elections in china than i think people might think um you know as an authoritarian one-party state elections are not really their thing but at the local level there actually are some localities that have experimented with it and kind of do allow it uh, they don't allow obviously systematic uh, opposition parties to form uh, but they do allow individuals who want to run against a party candidate to run and so long as that individual is not like an ideological opponent of the communist party they'll generally let that slide uh, i remember back in the day this was way back in i guess the late aughts i want to say you know maybe chat can correct me if i'm wrong on this but there was a i think it was a village in southern china called wukon and uh, the local party guy who was in charge of the village got very unpopular. I don't remember exactly what the context was, but uh, it was, I think it had something to do with a corrupt land deal. You know, that's pretty common in uh, localities in China, at least at that time anyway. So there was a guy, a local village elder, I think, who decided to run against him. And uh, there was some shenanigans involved but basically in the long run he he ended up becoming the new head of the village he uh, was able to win the election against the communist uh, party candidate there ended up being an attempt by the party to kind of pressure him into standing down after there was some protests in the village over some other communist policies uh, i think they ended up surrounding the town at one point but i think eventually they smoothed everything out but that's an example of uh some scope for democracy being allowed at the local level in some places not everywhere but some places so they do kind of allow that so it happens more than you might think uh, but it's definitely definitely doesn't happen at a systematic level and at the national level i don't think it happens at all uh, china actually does technically have other political parties besides the communist party of china uh, but they're not true opposition parties you know they uh they're loyal to the Communist Party, and they don't really represent uh, constituencies or uh, they don't compete with the party for votes or any of that. I think technically they specifically represent certain interests, uh, like farmers, for example. I think one of them is supposed to be like a farmer's party or something. Uh, they're actually legacy parties. Back during the Chinese Civil War, there were a few political parties that allied with the Communist Party of China, and so the party ended up... Uh, allowing those other parties to continue even after they won the civil war but their scope for independent operation was basically nil so they're kind of showpiece parties at this point they don't really fulfill anything more than a symbolic role at the national level so that's all a long-winded way to, of saying that china doesn't have any kinds of substantive free elections at the national level um, iran doesn't have substantive free elections either but it does technically allow competing candidates to run. Uh, so long as you're not explicitly anti-Ayatollah uh, or anti-Islamic Republic, etc., uh, they'll generally, depending on the candidates in question, allow people to compete for power. And while, again, they're not completely competitive, there has been competition. You know, again, there is a, well, to kind of illustrate what kind of competition happens in Iran politically, uh, there is basically, if I'm, I should stop saying basically, 
if I remember correctly, there are roughly three major political factions in Iran. Um, one of them is the, I guess what you could call the institutional interests. See, these are the guys, uh, the actual clerics, the Ayatollah himself, you know, sort of the Islamic aspect of the Islamic Republic. Those actors kind of form a, a distinctive interest group of their own. I think those are the guys that kind of run the charities by which they generate most of their wealth. There's a lot of charities in Iran that uh, collect a lot of money, but most of it kind of gets funneled into uh, the clerisy and is kind of their source of uh, funding that they use for patronage and to maintain their power within the Machiavellian maneuvering that goes on within the uh, inner sanctum of Iranian politics. So there's those guys. And then there's also the nationalists. Uh, they're very conservative as well, but they're not as Islamist uh, as the Ayatollah and the clerisy. Uh, the nationalists are sort of more about Iran in general, and Islam is part of Iran's nationalist identity, but Islam is not the only part of Iranian identity. Whereas with the clerics, obviously Islam is more, you know, they're night and day. That's pretty much where it begins and ends for them as far as uh, ideology and governance. <clears throat> the nationalists don't clash much with the clerics, uh, but there has been tension. You know, some of you may remember um, well, I'll ask, I'll ask you, Nero, do you remember uh, the president of Iran back in the aughts? It was a guy named, um, I think it was Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. The name sounds familiar. Yeah, he was in the news a bit because he would always come um, to the UN and release statements about how, you know, he was going. To, I think the, the famous one was he said that he wanted to erase Israel from the map. And so that was construed as a desire to, you know, attack Israel and destroy it in some kind of apocalyptic conflict. So that was the big one that kind of made the rounds in the international media. But uh, he was always making, you know, grandiose comments like that of one sort, or maybe not to that degree and not always regarding Israel, but he had a big mouth, basically. He was that kind of politician. And uh, it didn't always sit well with the clerics. Uh, you know, the clerics wanted more of an emphasis on, uh, well, obviously, for one, Islam, but Ahmadinejad also had a more interest in an adventurous foreign policy and uh, allegations of corruption, I think, also were made that the clerics weren't entirely pleased with. I think the uh, main institutional actor that represents the interests of the nationalists is the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, which has close relations with the Ayatollah, but as an institution, it does have somewhat of a separate set of interests and perspectives. And uh, generally, they work together, whatever their differences, because they have a common foe, uh, which is the third major interest group, that, that being the reformists. Now, obviously, there are some liberal Democrats in uh, Iran, you know, some socialists, you know, westernized people of one sort or another. Uh, but not all reformists are like that. There are, there are actually conservative reformists. And generally, Conservative reformists are the ones who are allowed to run in the elections. So uh, the famous example there is uh, the current president, whose name I think escapes me. I, think, I want to say Rafsanjani, something to that effect. I don't quite remember his name. Uh, but he is technically a reformer, albeit of the reformers, he's definitely on the right wing of that spectrum. But he was allowed to run against a nationalist, uh, even more conservative candidate, and the public ultimately did 
vote for that reformist candidate. And that sent a signal to the Ayatollah and the establishment that the people wanted some kind of easing of economic pressure, wanted a more conciliatory uh, foreign policy, etc. And so the Iranian government kind of uh, recognized that and in recognition of it, eventually negotiated, uh, well, accepted anyway, uh, the nuclear deal with the Obama administration. I think that was the um, timeline anyway, and please correct me if I'm wrong on that. But that illustrates that there is some competition there. It's within a narrow scope, but uh, the government does recognize that it needs to allow people to vent to some degree. They can't vote for radical change, but they can signal what kinds of policies they would prefer. And uh, when they're not really gung-ho about traditional nationalism or Islamism or what have you, and some of the things that uh, the nationalists and Islamists are doing in government, they can vote for the reformists that are allowed to run and kind of voice that dissatisfaction, even if they can't vote for people who are as reformist as they might like. Uh, there was there was actually um, a stronger reformist government, I think, in the 1990s. Uh, the government then had a lot more scope. I don't I, I don't remember his name at all, but the president at that time uh, was actually one of the guys who had uh, been part of the Islamic Revolution uh, back in uh, 1979. He was one of the founders of the Islamic Republic, so he his voice carried a lot of weight. Uh, you know, he wasn't like some outsider uh, who had not been an Islamist who was kind of uh, arguing or agitating uh, for westernization or liberalization of one kind or another. You know, he was an Islamist, uh, but he wanted the government to take a softer line uh, in its foreign relations. He wanted more reconciliation with the United States. Uh, he wanted the uh, government to have a lighter hand. You know, he wasn't going to get rid of the Islamic uh, police, the morality police, uh, whatever they're called over there. But uh, he did want them to kind of take it easy. You know, not be quite so heavy-handed in how they dealt with people. So that was kind of a relatively liberal period for Iran, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, eventually, later on, with the after 9/11 and the whole axis of evil thing, <laughs> I don't know how many people are listening old enough to remember that, but some of you, I'm sure, do. That was uh, the Bush administration came out after 9/11 and argued that there was an axis of evil that was supporting terrorism in the world and the United States was going to make it its business to uh, pressure them into reform or failing that, perhaps uh, explicitly overthrow them. And I, I think the three nations that were on the list were North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. And the memory serves. So the Iranian government kind of took that as a bad sign. <laughs> understandably so. And uh, the government became more hawkish as a result. Uh, there was a willingness to work with the United States after 9-11, but uh, the U.S. government wasn't really having it. You know, they didn't trust the Iranian government, and there was a lot of hawks in the U.S. government that kind of saw 9-11 and the aftermath as an opportunity uh, to expand U.S. influence and to uh, remove or at least uh, challenge some regimes in the uh, Middle East and obviously on the Korean Peninsula that were adjutants, to say the least, uh, in U.S. foreign policy. And that's kind of a whole debate in and of itself, why that happened and etc. Uh, but challenging Iran like that empowered a lot of hawks. And uh, that was when they started flirting with restarting their nuclear program and 
that's pretty much that pretty much marked uh i guess what is now almost 20 year deterioration in relations between the US and Iran but uh, in the 1990s before 9/11 the relations were not quite normal but a lot better than they are now they were at least more or less stable uh the saudis didn't much like it but uh, the US was pretty much fine with it and things you know things kind of carried on business as usual in the middle east during the 1990s without too much uh well i shouldn't say business as usual cuz that's pretty violent in the middle east but uh, things were relatively quiet in the Middle East in the 1990s, uh, in part on account of that sort of de facto U.S.-Iranian detente. Anyway, all of that is just meant to illustrate that reformists are allowed sufficient scope in Iranian politics to compete with hardliners, nationalists, Islamists, etc. So that's kind of that's my way of trying to elaborate this point I'm trying to make about. Uh, how the Iranian government has relatively more legitimacy than other authoritarian governments because it does institutionalize, uh, well, I should say, because it does utilize uh, some democratic institutions. They're not fully democratic, but some of those electoral institutions they use do have some democratic faucets. And uh, that serves to give people, if not an outright voice in governance, then at least uh, a stronger illusion that they have a voice in governance, and that has a beneficial effect on the government's legitimacy. Uh, it also helps the Iranian government that a lot of people in Iran really don't trust the United States. That kind of goes back to uh, the removal of the Shah back in the 1950s. You know, a lot of people, probably the vast majority of people in Iran, they explicitly blame the United States for the removal of, uh, not the removal of the Shah, I'm sorry, that's... Um, empowering the Shah. Uh, there was a conflict between the, the Shah of Iran. The Shah is like the emperor. He was sort of the traditional emperor or sultan, maybe would be the more accurate term. There was competition between the Shah at the time. I think his name was Shah Pahlavi and uh, the elected president, whom was a guy named Masood. I don't quite remember what his name was actually, but he was a nationalist. Uh, he had been voted in not that long before, I think maybe five to 10 years before uh, the coup happened. And his big thing was nationalizing uh, Western-owned oil interests in Iran. And he obviously met with a lot of resistance from the British in particular, because uh, British Petroleum owned most of the oil assets in Iran. So when the uh, when this nationalist president started nationalizing those assets, there was a British embargo, I think it was, of Iran, and so that turned into a big shit show for everybody involved. You know, the British uh, were not really at the height of their power in the 1950s. You know, the empire was still a very was still very powerful and relevant in international affairs, but. Uh, an exercise in power like that at that stage was not popular. You know, imperialism was very much on the way out, so it was not a good look for them. Uh, but then for uh, the nationalist president, I'm sorry, don't let me just look it up, because I'm sure I could Google it quickly. British. Somebody in chat's probably already posted it. Mossadegh, that's what it was, Mohammed Mossadegh. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. 
So for Mohammed Mosada, it was a big problem for him too, because as the uh, British embargo went on, he actually lost popularity. You know, the, it's true that the CIA helped fund and paid for some protests against him, but there was actually a lot of legitimate discontent in Iran against Mossadegh because of the embargo. He was perceived to be mismanaging the whole problem. You know, he was thought to have been too aggressive and that he should have taken a softer line. You know, he really did move very quickly to nationalize British petroleum assets, and there wasn't a lot of negotiation. So he kind of forced a serious confrontation there where maybe he didn't have to. So that he did get significant support, but he also had fairly significant legitimate opposition beyond just what was funded by the CIA. And I think it's also kind of worth mentioning here, and this is a little counterintuitive given later history, but uh, removing Mossadegh and empowering the Shah was actually supported by clerics in Iran. That is to say, the people that would later take over Iran and uh, form the Islamic Republic, the de facto theocracy that Iran has now. They uh, blamed the United States for overthrowing the government in the 50s, blamed the CIA for intervening in the nation's affairs, blamed the U.S. for su supporting the Shah and his intelligence services. The uh, intelligence services under the Shah were famous for being uh, brutal and intolerant of dissent and torturing people, etc. So that's kind of one of their calls for, that was, that's kind of one of their calling cards is to blame the U.S. for that, and that's part of how they derive their legitimacy. But actually at the time, the Islamic clerics were kind of behind uh, the overthrow of Mosada because they didn't like uh, his secular style. You know, he was a relatively secular nationalist, and uh, they didn't like some of the plans that he had for modernization. That would actually be a theme, because that's also one of the reasons that the, the clerics turned on the Shah eventually. The Shah was all about economic modernization, and uh, a lot of the clerics didn't much like that, for, obviously, uh, for obvious reasons. You know, economic development tends to bring social change, and that's not, uh, that's not really what you're about if you're a conservative Islamic cleric in a, a mid-20th century Iran. So they were actually behind that, from what I read. You know, again, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Anyway, that's, I guess that's kind of a tangent. But the point is that Mossadegh was getting more and more unpopular, and he wasn't really handling it well. Uh, another one of the things that he did, and this is something that unnerved the United States, is that he started centralizing more and more power uh, in his government. Uh, you know, the Shah was already kind of all on the way out. The position of the Shah in Iranian politics was already kind of being marginalized. It had been on the way out for some time. Uh, the Iranian government under previous shahs had tried to modernize the country by introducing a parliament, you know, modern bureaucracy, etc. And there had, there had been some competition between the shah and the elected government before, but it wasn't until now that the shah, shah's power was kind of clearly in the eclipse. Uh, it was clear that the, the new government that had been formed was kind of coming of age and was becoming the preeminent institution in Iran, or at least in Iranian politics. So as that happened, uh, as Mossadegh lost support because of that perceived mismanaging, and as the Shah kind of sat on his hands because he didn't think he could do anything, uh, Mossadegh centralized more and more power to try to deal with the dissent that was emerging, which was not really the most democratic way to go about it, and that was part of the reason the United States kind of suspected he was an authoritarian in the making. But he also started inviting in uh, communists. Uh, he started making 
nominal alliances with communists. Com the Communist Party in Iran was one of the supporters of, and defenders of the Mossadegh government, which was not unusual. Uh, communist parties around that world at that time generally made alliances with nationalists. You know, that's basically what happened in Vietnam. Uh, we should do Vietnam sometime. That would be fun. Uh, and anyway, but yeah, the communists were definitely involved in his government, and that kind of was the maybe it wasn't quite the straw that broke the camel's back for the United States, but that was a big red flag because at that time it was kind of well, not kind of, but it was implicitly assumed among many in the United States government early in the Cold War that communist parties around the world were actually just uh, puppets of the Soviet Union. And that's not really entirely true. Um, well, that is to say, it wasn't entirely true that all communist parties were just at the beck and call of, of Moscow. But it was true that there, the Soviet Union did have a history of trying to coordinate with foreign communist parties. Uh, that was what the, uh, what was it called? Interpol? No, not Interpol. That's the police agency. Uh, it slips my mind, but the Soviet Union did build an institution, and in, I think at the 1920s, that was dedicated to organizing different communist parties around the world in the name of global revolution. I think they ended up scrapping it in like the early 1930s. Uh, you know, that kind of reflected the debate between Trotsky and Stalin about it whether it was better to propagate world revolution or to focus on building socialism at home. And uh, Stalin pretty clearly won that debate. It's hard to win it when you're getting an ice pick in your brain. So as a result, uh, the Stalin approach of focusing on the Soviet Union won the day, and there wasn't as much of an effort after that to kind of coordinate. But they still did it. Soviet intelligence kind of was out there in general, kind of building networks and using it for uh, espionage purposes. So it wasn't completely paranoia that uh, the Soviet Union was coordinating with them. Uh, but it was a little bit overblown, and it prob there probably was a fair amount of overselling on the part of zealous politicians trying to push uh, anti-communist policies. To be fair, though, there was a lot of communist party leaders around the world who were very <laughs> did not they gave a lot of reason to suspect that they were loyal to Moscow more than to their own countries. You know, I remember when I was doing research for the um, Rio Treaty thing I've been working on. Uh, there was one guy, I think he was the head of the Brazil, of Brazil's Communist Party in the 1940s. And I think he came out at one point after World War II, uh, like just after, and said that he was explicitly, he said this explicitly, that he was loyal to uh, the Soviet Union and its government and that he wanted Brazil's Communist Party to be part of the Soviet Union's plans to spread communism. Um, it was not the most deft political move, <laughs> suffice to say. You know, in a country as anti-communist as Brazil was, uh, it was perhaps not uh, a clever way to go about signaling your position in Brazilian politics. So statements like that, not only by that guy, but, you know, other people and ju just the general sentiment among a lot of people in communist parties around the world kind of fed paranoia amongst anti-communists that they really were. Uh, agents of the Soviet Union. So yeah, in that sense, communist parties around the world really weren't doing themselves any favors uh, by stoking that paranoia. So those are, that's, that's a long-winded way of saying that there was some communist party presence in most of those government, and uh, that's part of what got the U.S. involved. And uh, to kind of 
bring that full circle, the reason he did that is because he needed to try to build alliances in order to maintain his popular support, which was kind of fading uh, over the course of this dispute with Britain and uh, because of the embargo and its economic effects, which uh, a lot of people in Iran were getting pretty tired of. I think people in Iran still supported nationalization. That wasn't the problem. It was more just uh, the ham-fisted way that the Mossadegh government kind of went about it was more what was upsetting people. And uh, you know, also the fact that he was cracking down on protests and was centralizing power beyond the ambit of the Constitution. Uh, those also were uh, underlying factors. So all of that, of course, resulted in uh, the UK and the United States uh, trying to push the Shah to take power, which he didn't want to do. Uh, so they had to do quite a bit of cajoling to try to get him to do that. There was a number of people in the Iranian government, I think the military and some of the uh, civil service that were very much for overthrowing Mossadegh, and they tried to coordinate with the United States and the Shah, but the Shah was just so timid at that time uh, that it took a lot of caressing and convincing, like, yes, we'll support you, it won't be a problem, blah, blah, blah. And uh, finally, he eventually agreed, and they were able to move things forward and uh, put the Shah in power as the central leader and the primary institution in Iranian politics again. So that's, uh, that's how the Shah came to power, basically, after uh, the coup in the, well, in the 1950s. I want to say it was in 54, but I'm not sure. But right around there in the 1950s there. And uh, that's, how, that's how that happened, and uh, that's how the Iranian government today uh, is able to kind of blame the United States for intervening in Iranian affairs, because that is sort of the principal example of that. Uh, subsequent, you know, decades, the U.S. support for, I think it was called SAVAK, actually. That was the Shah's intelligence service, uh, the SAVAK, uh, was very unpopular in Iran, and U.S. support for that kind of also is seen as a, is another one of the major adjutants for Iranian nationalists, as far as the reasons why they disliked the U.S. and U.S. interference in Iranian affairs, as well as uh, Middle Eastern affairs in general. So that's a source of their legitimacy, one of the sources of their legitimacy. A lot of Iranian nationalists are very suspicious of the United States. And in turn, to bring this full circle again, uh, that's why, or part of why, sanctions against Iran are probably not as effective uh, because there is relatively more solidarity in Iran in response to sanctions because they're coming from the United States, which is a country that a lot of people there are kind of wary of for historical reasons. Right. Sanctions, they do have an economic impact, but it also seems like a lot of it is, as you said, the political effort to make an impact. And if we've already pegged ourselves, speaking from an American perspective, as enemies, then, I mean, it's not really surprising if your enemy is pushing sanctions on you. Like that wouldn't really rustle you in a way that causes you to reevaluate your situation. So another point that you did in the comparison between China and Iran and also just general elections is the amount of democratic voice that the people have can vary quite a bit. And a lot of that depends on how freely they can choose the candidates. From what you said, it sounded like the process of elections in China is more of like charades rather than actual elections, where they have a lot of the trimmings of what an election process is like, but because it's so constricted on 
people who are already pro-communist party, then it's not really that much of an election at all, as you said. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess, what you would call a sham election to a degree. Mm. But uh, they do have them technically. It's just they're... It's, it's not entirely a sham election because at the local level, they do allow some of that, like I said. But yeah, at the national level, uh, it's pretty much just who the party wants. It's not, it's not like a real, legit election. Whereas in Iran, they do have them. Uh, they do have com political competition that occurs to a degree that you would not see in China at a national level. The pursuit of fairness... It's an ongoing process. Some elections are more fair than others. Some countries have a greater breadth of ideas than others. We have plenty of our own problems in the U.S. too. Well, speaking of elections, we have the other big piece of news and talking point that some people have asked me about this past week. The uh, British elections. <laughs> so Boris wins again. He does at that. Thoughts, implications on that? I know a lot of the people in the StarCraft community and in the streaming scene are upset by this. Obviously, some people are happy about this, given that he won. Was this surprising to you at all, this outcome? Yeah, a little bit. I was kind of expecting a hung parliament, because I didn't really think that there was a significant edge that any one party had over another. You know, it kind of felt like uh, political sentiments were still pretty split. So I was thinking it would be more like uh, the last election where there was, where things were pretty indecisive afterwards. Uh, but as was, uh, he was able, that is to say the Tories were able to pick up a significant number of seats. So it was a huge win for them. It was actually, I think the worst defeat for the Labour Party since 1983. I think that's what I was reading. So it was very ugly for them. That's uh, It was a pretty bad night. So let's see. I think I did have some notes here, so I can kind of briefly go over them. Uh, Tories now have a clear majority, so they're going to be able to kind of do what they want uh, as far as things like Brexit. Uh, well, Brexit's the main one. That's what's on everybody's mind. So uh, Boris Johnson, I think, said that he was going to uh, leave, have Britain leave the European Union at the end of January, I think it was. So that's probably going to happen. There will finally technically be Brexit at the end of January. The UK will officially leave the European Union, and uh, that stage of the process will end. Uh, as we've discussed before, that's not actually the end of Brexit. There's going to be several more years of negotiations to go, but technically uh, the UK will be out of the European Union at that point. And there had been some question about whether or not there would be the votes in Parliament to do that, whether or not there would be some reversal, another vote. You know, there was just a lot of questions. But now with the Conservatives, with a clear majority, it looks like uh, Brexit will move forward as planned. And uh, that focus will now shift towards the negotiation of uh, what will probably be some kind of free trade agreement between the UK and the European Union. So that's kind of where eyes are at this point. Uh, you know, like I said, Labor did badly. Uh, Liberal Democrats kind of treaded water. Uh, they lost a seat. Uh, I think it was the leader of the party's seat, so kind of an important one. 
So not a great night for them either. Uh, the SNP did really well. That's the Scottish Nationalist Party. They picked up 14 seats. Uh, Tories and Labour both lost about seven and six respectively in Scotland. So that's raising some questions about uh, what's going to happen as far what's going to happen as far as Scottish independence. They obviously uh, had a few years ago a referendum on whether or not Scotland should leave the UK and become an independent country, and it lost by I think. 10 percentage points, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, after that, the issue was kind of considered settled, but the problem became uh, Brexit. Because uh, one of the promises made, well, one of the desires that was stated on the part of uh, pretty much all sides in Scotland is that they wanted Scotland to stay in the European Union. And uh, part of the conservative counter-argument against uh, Scotland leaving the UK it was that if Scotland left the UK, then they would not automatically be in the European Union. And if they wanted to stay in the European Union, they should stay in the UK. And then the UK voted to leave the European Union. So that argument is obviously no longer in effect. So the argument by Scottish nationalists then is that the basis for uh, well, one of the principal arguments against Scotland becoming independent has been rendered void, and hence there should be another referendum uh, to see whether Scotland should be independent, to see if minds have changed, basically, uh, on account of the major changes in British national policy since the last Scottish nationalist uh, independence referendum. <clears throat> so that could be a thing, but the Conservatives have said that they're dead set against it. The Tories said that the Scottish independence vote was a once-in-a-generation vote or something to that in effect, so they're very opposed to it, but the Scottish Nationalist Party is just as steadfast that they should have it, so we could see a little bit of uh, Catalan on the Thames over in the UK in the near future, so to speak. We'll see what happens with that. Uh, probably won't be a big issue in the near term. I think most people will still be focusing on Brexit, and it'll, even if there is another referendum, it'll take months to negotiate all the details and stuff, so probably not too big a problem in the short term. I think minor correction pronunciation is the Thames. Is it's it the, the Thames? The river you're talking about. They go with the French pronunciation, I believe. Oh. Yeah. Well, there's another one I've been mispronouncing my whole life. <laughs> yep. Well, it makes me feel moderately useful for something in these discussions. <laughs> I get You're to very be the pronunciation useful. guide. Don't shortchange yourself. Yeah. Well, for a lot of these situations, I don't know shit about it. There was one thing that I ended up picking up while I was in an Uber. They just had the radio on and there was a a bunch of issues in India, it sounded like. People are very upset. Uh, Right-wing populism, it seems like, has a big surge, globally speaking. And they're dealing with some of that in a way that is unfavorable to some people. I think a lot of it has to do with identity politics, Hindu versus not, whether India is a secular country and what kind of freedoms mm -hmm. are given to different religious groups. Uh, India is very multicultural. I think that's one of the things that's difficult to perceive the further you are away from a given country is how diverse it really is. India has a super large population and many different kinds of people in the country. 
lots of different religious groups and things like that. So for all of them to feel like they have a voice and they're free to express themselves is pretty difficult. Uh, was there anything that had caught your like awareness recently regarding India or is it kind of? Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was the big thing going on in India right now uh, is this uh, citizenship. Well, I guess it's not a citizenship bill. Technically right now it's a refugee bill. It's about uh, whether or not refugees from Bangladesh will be uh, given official status in India and allowed to stay. And that sounds all well and good, but it's, it's actually a lot more complicated than that because it actually does tie into a previous uh, citizenship bill, which was all about trying to verify the citizenship of people in, I think, uh, I said Bangladesh. I should have said West Bengal. Uh, refugees. Refugees from Bangladesh coming to West Bengal, and uh, the citizenship the citizenship bill before was, I think, principally targeted at West Bengal, uh, as well as Assam and you know the Seven Sisters provinces up in the northeast. There, the idea was that they wanted to try to, what's the word, deport uh, illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. And uh, the thinking was that you know the border was poorly enforced. And that there was there had been over the previous few decades a significant uh, buildup of illegal migrants coming in, or should I I should say migrants from Bangladesh coming in illegally uh, across the border and settling in uh, West Bengal and you know basically the states surrounding Bangladesh. And that was a problem, obviously, because immigration is a sensitive subject pretty much everywhere, uh, almost regardless of context. So obviously there's economic pressures, you know, uh, people argue that they're undercutting wages by coming in. They uh, complain about perceived cultural changes. Uh, obviously Bangladesh is a Muslim country and uh, most of the surrounding provinces are Hindu or Christian or uh, perhaps another uh, animist. Some of the native animist faiths I think are still prominent in some of the northeastern areas. So having a significant number of Muslims come in, that uh, unnerved some of the locals as well. And obviously, like you say, you know, uh, it's kind of a nationalist period in India's history. And uh, nationalism in India is increasingly defined by Hinduism. Uh, and not only Hinduism, but Hinduism almost explicitly in opposition to Islam in particular. So the issue of illegal immigrants coming in is sensitive enough by itself but the fact that the immigrants in question are mostly Muslim just makes it all the more uh, of a problem for nationalists in India. So it's actually true that a number of people had come in from Bangladesh over the previous few decades, but it really hadn't been a problem because a lot of the relevant laws regarding uh, who's a citizen and who's not were not really enforced. And, uh, in fact, you know, you can go even further. A lot of the people who live in West Bengal and who are not migrants from uh, Bangladesh, even they don't really have a lot of documentation that kind of proves that they're actually there legitimately. So it's just one of those, uh, it's an example of a, a law uh, or maybe a policy that's just not really enforced. And so people don't take it seriously. And uh, as a result, nothing happens you know it's uh, if you pass a law then you have to enforce it in order to get people to observe it if you don't enforce it then it doesn't matter if you can go to jail for it if you don't expect to ever actually go to jail 
So as a result, a lot of the relevant laws about documentation, you know, whether you're a refugee or not, uh, were just not observed. And that's partly just because uh, ad administrative capacity in India is kind of poor. They don't have a lot of resources to put into it. There's corruption. Uh, everything takes forever. You know, it can take years to move through a judicial process or to get a, uh, you know, a paperwork of any kind from uh, administration. So it's just kind of, it was just kind of easier for a lot of people just to ignore it. And everybody was pretty okay with that for a long time until now. And uh, part of the problem, again, immigration was a sensitive subject. So the government tried to take action uh, by basically demanding that people uh, prove that they were actually citizens. And again, the target explicitly was West Bengal in particular, as well as the Northeastern states. And uh, the idea was that they could significantly curtail the number of migrants uh, who were there allegedly illegally. Now, that probably would have worked. You know, it wasn't, uh, they weren't wrong that there was a lot of people there who shouldn't have technically been there. But the problem that they encountered is that a lot of the people that were there were either there legitimately and had been, but just didn't happen to have paperwork, or were there legitimately, but were Hindu which means that they were more likely to support the BJP, which is the Nationalist Party in India. And a lot of those people were upset that they were being targeted in particular. They thought that was a bit, uh, I don't know, hypocritical. Like, well, not hypocritical per se, but they, th they thought it was wrong that they were being lumped in with uh, sectarian rivals. Uh, so as a result, eventually the government kind of moved away uh, from that policy. They didn't end it completely, uh, but they did stop it for a while. And this new effort regarding the refugees is basically the attempt to revive it and implement it like they'd kind of wanted to all along. And the idea with the refugee bill is that uh, if you are a refugee from Bangladesh, then you can uh, apply for official status, basically permanent residency in India, and uh, be here legally. You know, you will be free and clear. But the caveat is that this uh, offer does not extend to refugees who are Muslims. It's only good for uh, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, you know, what have you. So this is a problem because a lot of the people uh, in West Bengal uh, who are Muslims or, you know, whoever, uh, a lot of them don't have documentation, but are there legitimately, and even those who haven't been there legitimately, have been there for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you know, they have families, they have property. So really they're in effect Indian citizens, like uh, having not enforced the rule for so long, it's pretty hypocritical, you know, not misusing the word again. It's unfair, shall we say, to just jump in now and start enforcing it. And uh, the suspicion is that it's a malicious policy at this point, you know, but when it was just the citizenship bill, you could say it's just about immigration. Uh, but now it seems pretty clear that the way these bills are going to be used is that if you're Hindu or Christian or whatever, whatever non-Muslim religion you are in West Bengal uh, or the Northeastern states, then you can apply to be a refugee and they'll just give it to you. They don't even really care. But if you're Muslim, uh, then whether you're an illegal immigrant who came in just the past year or if you're an illegal immigrant who's been there for 30 years and is an established member of the community, or even if you're a legal resident, a legal citizen, but you don't have documentation to prove it, and you're Muslim, those people can, and it looks like, will be deported to Bangladesh as illegal immigrants. And so this has led to a big hue and cry because the 
purpose of this policy, if that is how they're going to implement it, is to basically purge West Bengal of Muslims, which is going to be a problem for uh, millions of people in West Bengal, because about half the population is Muslim. Now, obviously, probably most of those people do have documentation and will be able to prove they're there legally, but there's a significant number who won't. And the government is basically just looking for an excuse to get rid of those people in particular. Now, the reasons why are debatable. Um, obviously, critics of the government say that it's borderline fascism, that they're being authoritarians, that they're just trying to uh, oppress a marginalized community that is not in favor with the government. Um, that could be true, but it could also be true that they're just doing it for the votes, basically, that it's just pandering to... Uh, the Hindutva vote in West Bengal, that is to say the Hindu nationalist vote, and uh, that they're just doing it for raw popularity, basically. Uh, it could also be that they're trying to build up their uh, electoral advantage. Uh, they're trying to, obviously, if you're a Muslim minority in India, you're a little wary of the BJP, you know, for obvious reasons. So that being the case, uh, it kind of makes sense if you're the BJP to, if you can, minimize the number of Muslims who are available to vote against you. And obviously, this policy, if it is implemented as I described it, uh, would significantly curtail the number of Muslim voters uh, in West Bengal. And that would be to the advantage of the BJP, since those people are probably mostly supporters of either the Indian National Congress or some other rival party to the BJP. So this could just be abuse of power in that case. So there's a couple different possibilities. I'm not uh, sufficiently familiar with Indian politics to really make a strong argument to any one of them, but those are the ones that come to mind. So it's still early days. It's just happened. You know, there's been protests in New Delhi and West Bengal and et cetera. So we'll see what kind of comes of it, you know, what, what they actually do, you know, if they do implement the policy at all. Uh, and if they do implement it, how they implement it. So, you know, maybe it is going to just be a purge of Islam from West Bengal, uh, or maybe it's more of a moderate purging of significant numbers of people without documentation, but is otherwise not necessarily discriminatory, although it is pretty much designed to be that way. Uh, or on the other hand, maybe they just kind of completely half-ass it and they go back to just passing laws but not really enforcing them. That could happen too. So we'll see. But that's that's the big news that's been coming out of India. There's a question in the chat. Is West Bengal a state within India? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it actually used to be part of Bangladesh um, or maybe vice versa. You know, the whole thing was all just British India at one point. Uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India, uh, all of that used to be just British India. It was all one territory. Uh, it was cut up into a bunch of different princely states and provinces and, you know, presidencies, what have you. But it was nominally one polity. And uh, when the British decided that, well, there was a big question about what uh, Indian independence would look like. You know, how do you grant this huge territory independence? Do you just carve it up into different countries and grant them independence on a country by country basis? Uh, you know, do you divide up British India according to religion? Do you divide it up according to caste? Do you divide North and South, you know, the Dravidian South versus the Aryan North? Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could have cut up British India to make different polities. And uh, it wasn't really clear what the correct answer was. And so the British kind of deferred that decision uh, for the most part to 
the Indian politicians and interest group, the main interest group was obviously the independence movement. So they kind of, you know, they the degree to which Britain interfered in the process is kind of a subject to debate, so I won't get into that. But uh, what happened was there was a big conversation within India about what, uh, how to break up or whether to break up British India. And Indian nationalists ultimately were able to negotiate among themselves. Obviously, there's an immense amount of diversity even among Indian nationalists at that time. So they negotiated amongst themselves, and it was agreed uh, various concessions that would ameliorate concerns and facilitate a united India. But the, run, but the one group that could never be reconciled to the idea of a united India was uh, the Muslims, specifically uh, the Muslim, Muslim. I'm saying it wrong again, aren't I? Is it Muslim? That works. That's okay. the American way. Uh, Muslim or Muslim, which is the way that they say it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll try to stick with Muslim for now. Uh, Muslim, yeah, the one group that couldn't be reconciled was the Muslims in South Asia. And uh, the, their main party at that time was the Muslim League, uh, as led by a guy named uh, Jinnah. And uh, they had a vision for an independent Muslim India separate from the rest of India. And the reasons why they were able to generate en enough support amongst Muslim Indians uh, kind of vary. You know, there's kind of a whole history there. Uh, they, they never actually, I think, got the support of most Pashtuns. I think most ethnic Pashtuns and what became northwestern Pakistan were actually more for a united India. Uh, and then other Muslims were kind of on the fence, but uh, events over the course of the late 1930s uh, kind of concerned a lot of Muslims in South Asia, such that they were a little skeptical that Muslims in a united India would be treated fairly uh, by what would be a Hindu majority India. And so there was a pretty strong desire to get significant concessions as far as uh, Muslim representation in Indian government. You know, they wanted reserved seats. That was a pretty common approach to uh, trying to reconcile different groups within India. Uh, Dalits, for example, the untouchables, uh, the lowest caste uh, of the castes in India and the worst treated, uh, that was a significant interest group in and of itself. And they, uh, they were de facto led by a guy named uh, Am Ambedkar, I think it was. And uh, he was super skeptical about how Dalits would be treated in a Hindu India, and in, in an independent India, I should say. And uh, he demanded reserved seats for Dalits in India in a proposed independent India's future parliament in exchange for his support and in turn the support of the, the Dalit community in South Asia. And that was granted. And I think they still have those reserved seats today. Uh, maybe I should explain reserved seats. You know, basically the way a parliament works is that you, if you're using a representative system anyway, everybody votes and then part, seats are distributed according to the percentage of the vote that each party gets. Uh, with reserved seats, uh, what you'll do is that you'll have seats specifically for specific communities. So it doesn't matter. Uh, well, what matters is how those specific communities vote. And so uh, how those seats in, that are reserved are distributed depends entirely on how specific communities or constituencies vote. Uh, in other words, those seats are distributed separately from the main seats that are based on the national vote. That's a that's a rough, probably bad description, but I think that I think you get the idea roughly. Uh, so that was a system designed to ameliorate minority groups like the Dalits, and the Muslims wanted a system like that. Uh, 
but a lot of people in the independence movement were skeptical because the Muslims were asking for very significant, uh, for a significant number of reserved seats. You know, in effect, they wanted a power of veto over the Indian government, and a lot of people thought that was unfair. And uh, another problem was uh, Hindutva, you know, the Hindu nationalists. That was a part of the Indian independence movement. It was not the only part, and it wasn't even necessarily the most important part. But they were present, and they became more active over the course of the 1930s, and some of the rhetoric coming from them uh, unnerved a lot of uh, Muslims in India. I think another problem, uh, well, not a problem per se, but one of the things that happened in, the, I think it was the 1940 election, uh, it, the British allowed some free elections leading up, you know, 15, 20 years leading up to independence. And I think in the 1940 election, the Muslim League just got crushed. You know, they didn't. They did not win a significant number of seats, and it was very. It was a very ugly loss for them. And uh, they responded to that in part by focusing much more on the idea of an independent Muslim state. So, in a sense, you could argue that the Muslim League was a uh, well. That Pakistan is the result of an election strategy. You know, the idea that they're going to try to win back the votes that they lost by pushing for uh, a kind of well, I should say, pandering to. Muslim nationalism in South Asia. That was sort of a strategy that they took. But I don't think that's really the, I think that's part of the reason that the idea of an independent Pakistan, that's what the, the independent Muslim nation ended up being. That's how Pakistan was formed. Uh, that's part of the reason Pakistan ultimately ended up getting formed. But it's not the only port. That's not the only aspect there. Because again, uh, even after 1940, when the Muslim League started pushing for Pakistan, they were still nominally arguing for reserved seats within an independent India. So that was left open as a possibility, the idea of a united India that included Muslims. Uh, it was only later when those negotiations broke down that Pakistan kind of became inevitable. And then, of course, some people in India just blamed the British. It's their fault that Pakistan exists. They wanted to try to have some, inf they wanted to try to retain some influence in South Asia, and so they carved out a independent Muslim India that they could have as a kind of proxy ally in South Asia. I don't know. So historically, to get a sense of the landscape, both Pakistan and Bangladesh used to be part of India, but they're independent countries now, and they're both predominantly Muslim. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was... <laughs> yeah, that's the short version. <laughs> I kind of got off on a tangent, I'm sorry. No, I mean, that that's the, the aspect of hosting is I'm trying to follow everything and be able to give a compact summary of like the basic landscape there. Because I think a lot of people don't know that as a historical thing. I think I actually learned that from you a few years ago. What was that? Oh, just that Bangladesh and Pakistan used to be a part of India. Oh, yeah. Yeah. India has a very long history. From the American perspective, I think we're not used to having that depth of past because a lot of us are from different countries, Europe, Africa, etc. Yeah, the past sucks. America's more about the future. Yeah. Now, why build a museum when you can have a parking lot? I <laughs> oh, mean, we still don't have enough parking, though. <laughs> true but yeah that uh, Bangladesh was uh, oh that's the point I was getting at yeah Pakistan 
India, Bangladesh, we're all one state. So when uh, there was a big debate about how to carve up India, blah, 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 you know, all the stuff I said. So that leads up to uh, carving Pakistan out of British India. But then how do you do that? I mean, you can say that, okay, Muslim majority regions go into Pakistan and then everybody else is in India. But the trouble is that there's a lot of, there was a lot of communities in British India that had mixed populations. That would be like, you know, 60% Muslim, 40% Hindu, or, you know, like 50-50 even. You know, there was, it was not like easy. It was not explicitly clear just how to draw a border between uh, India and a prospect of Pakistan. And so uh, ultimately, one of the, part of the ultimate uh, decision, part of the ultimate solution was expected to be the maintenance of open borders. So, you know, it was kind of assumed that India and Pakistan uh, would be separate countries, but that they would retain strong economic and political and cultural ties, and that there would be open borders and that everything would be lovey-dovey, you know, they will, they'll get along fine. They just have to, uh, you know, recognize each other's borders and just maintain stability. Uh, obviously, that definitely did not end up happening, <laughs> you know, for a whole other set of re that's a whole other conversation. But that was kind of part of the assumed solution uh, to that problem of drawing up borders. Now, as far as how they actually ended up uh, deciding the borders, they actually brought in a lawyer from Britain who hadn't ever been to India before, and they asked him to do it. Like, here, you, you, you can do this, I'm sure, correct? Yeah, you're, you're from Oxford. You can do anything. So just drop a new border between these two territories that have never been separate. And um, he said, okay. So he looked at the ethnographic maps and looked at the different communities and said, all right, some of these are obviously going to be one or the other, you know, 90% Muslim. Okay, let's stick that in Pakistan. Uh, but one of the conditions that he had was that he wanted the territories to be contiguous. So, you know, he didn't want like a territory that's 60% Hindu that's surrounded by, you know, 70, 80% uh, Muslim communities to just be an island of India, you know, a little Indian enclave within Pakistan. So those examples generally were incorporated into, you know, in that specific example, he would have incorporated that into Pakistan. And in the case of 50-50 uh, or, you know, 60% communities that were kind of on the border between India and what would become Pakistan, uh, that was kind of more of a judgment call on his part. And part of that had to do with historical factors. You know, they wanted, uh, what's it called, um, Amritsar. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that, too. Um, that's a city in Punjab, and uh, that's a holy city in the Sikh religion. So that's, there was a lot of mixed communities around that, but it was, de it was decided that that should be part of India because... Uh, India was going to be more Hindu and Sikh, etc. So uh, even though there was a lot of Muslim communities around Amritsar, they kind of went out of their way to try to put that in India. So that's just an example of the kind of arbitrary nature of you know some of the border drawing there. And that also, that also illustrates uh, how badly Punjab was affected. Um, Punjab was very mixed. You know, it had a lot of Hindus, a lot of Muslims, and a significant population of Sikhs. It was really a single contiguous polity and economic region. And, you know, it really should just be one territory. But it ended up getting split along sectarian lines uh, somewhat arbitrarily. And uh, the result, of course, is the uh, famous migration of Muslims out of eastern Punjab and the, the migration of Hindus out of western Punjab into India. I think they have a name for that. I don't quite remember what it was. 
but a partition that right that was what it was partition the partitioning of british india into india and pakistan uh, that was very dramatic because a lot of people were very upset at the way the borders were drawn because they didn't want to be uh, in a given, you know, maybe you're Hindu and you don't want to be in Pakistan because you think you'll be mistreated and that your rights won't be respected. Or maybe you're a Muslim who lives in a village that ended up in India and you're afraid that your rights will be violated. So there was a massive migration of people uh, out of uh, the two territories after the borders were released. And uh, there was a huge amount of violence that resulted from that. Uh, I think probably more than a million people died thereabouts. It's a rough estimate, I think. But, you know, after after escaping World War II relatively unscathed, India actually did go through some serious trauma uh, afterwards during as a result of partition. So it's not as though India got out of the 1940s unscathed. Uh, anyway, Punjab was really badly hit by that because that was like ground zero uh, for some of the most difficult decisions. You know, it wasn't as hard in other places because other places didn't have as many people. Like um, one of the defining geographic characteristics of uh, the border between India and Pakistan is, I think it's called the Thar Desert. I'm probably misremembering that, but there's a big desert between them and not, not a lot of people live there. So that was that's not like a big deal where the border is drawn there because there's not a lot of people to get upset about it. And that makes up a good chunk of the Western border of uh, India and, uh, the, and its border with Pakistan. So not too much of a problem there, but Punjab was a uh, heavily settled, heavily, you know, it was heavily populated. It was economically developed, you know, relatively speaking. So that was uh, that was much more disruptive to draw a border right through the middle of that basically. So partition really badly hit Punjab in particular but then the other province uh, or state, as it were, that was badly hit was Bangladesh, uh, or as it was called then, Bengal. And uh, Bengal was pretty mixed. I think it was mostly Muslim at that point, but it was pretty even, pretty relatively evenly divided between Muslims and Hindus. And uh, I don't think it was as developed as Punjab, uh, but it definitely had a lot of history with the British. You know, it was the, the first place that the British East India Company had colonized slash conquered, you know, settled, however you want to frame that. And as a result, the Bengalis were some of the first people in India to kind of really be systematically educated in West with Western education and be exposed to Western ideas. Uh, I had a Bengali friend uh, in grad school, and he, he told me that uh, within Indian society, the sort of stereotype of, ben of Bengalis is that they're the intellectuals, and that that kind of reflects their history as uh, being exposed to Western education and getting involved in things like uh, Western literature. You know, they were some of the first Indians to publish uh, Western style literature, you know, intellectual works of one sort. I think uh, there's a famous Indian writer named uh, Tagore, Tangore. I don't quite remember his name, but uh, he's very well known in India and in the literary world, even outside India. And I believe he was Bengali, Bengali rather, uh, if memory serves. But uh, that is kind of, that's what I was told anyway, the stereotype of Bengalis was, uh, that they had kind of been exposed early on to uh, Western ideas, culture, technology, etc. And as a result, they ended up sort of developing faster than the rest of India in the early 1800s and uh, ended up being kind of the ideas guys of Indian culture as a result. I don't know how true that is today. I think other parts of India have since leapt frog. Uh, Bengal in terms of development, but back in the day, that was the case anyway, and the, the stereotype is apparently stuck. 
But anyway, Bengal at that time was relatively developed. Uh, it was an intellectual center. It was a cultural center. It wasn't the capital of British India anymore. The capital had, of British India had been in Calcutta, which is the biggest city in Bengal. Um, it had since been moved to uh, New Delhi, I think around like 1905 or 1910 or something. But uh, Calcutta was still a very important city. So all told, Bengal was like, again, like Punjab, was a single polity, a single economic entity. It was not, it was not really meant to be divided. But because they wanted to do a sectarian division, they had to. So it ended up being very disruptive in Bengal, just like it was in Punjab. And there was millions of people who migrated from you know one side of the border to the other, and there was a lot of violence. So that's uh, that's just to illustrate there that Bengal was very badly affected by partition, and that's kind of part of its history. But um, to bring this full circle, very long-winded, long circles today. Um, this is how West Bengal, the state, was formed. So to kind of address that question about, is West Bengal a state? Uh, yeah, uh, originally there was one Bengal, but then because of partition, uh, it was split into West Bengal, which became a state in India, and uh, what became East Pakistan, sort of the eastern section of Pakistan, and uh, a polity that later became the independent nation of Bangladesh. So Bangladesh and West Bengal are basically the successor states to what had been a united Bengal. Cool. There's a really nice comment in the chat. <laughs> uh, when you're saying that they consider themselves to be the intellectuals, you said that's what all communities say, that they're the intellectuals. <laughs> that's a, an aspect of in-group, out-group that you learn about in psychology is you tend to see a lot more of the good qualities, the nuance, the diversity within a group that you're familiar with and a part of, as opposed to the groups outside of that. Mm -hmm. This applies to a lot of different things, and this is one of them. Oh, yeah, we're the smart ones. They're the, the lazy ones who don't really think about stuff very much. They're less capable, less gifted, blah, blah, blah. Across the board, this mm -hmm. is very common. Yeah. Yeah, in-group, out-group is a very common uh, very common facet of human nature. Um, sometimes for better, oftentimes for worse, but that definitely plays a role in uh, how people view others, like you said. Yeah, it's, in my opinion, I think definitely for the worse from an objective, logical perspective, but we're not evolved to be objective and logical all the time. Mm -hmm. Some of it is just energy-saving. It's cheaper on your brain to make a bunch of assumptions because then you don't have to think about the perfect answer to every problem. That would be way too daunting, especially when there's a bear chasing you down right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's certainly the case. You know, sort of uh, cognitive heuristics, if you like. There's a bear chasing you and you're just stuck trying to figure out the right balance of proteins, fats, and carbs. <laughs> <laughs> Are eggs good for you or bad for you? And there's like, Bruh! hmm. Yeah, efficiency definitely has its benefits. Yeah. Unfortunately, not many bears around these days, so not quite as much pressure to be efficient. Yeah, I think there are still healthy bear populations in certain regions. They're pretty good at avoiding people, though, so we don't really have problems with the bears. Suits we like me. being left well enough alone. I don't think I could run very far. 
Well, let's see. I think that, uh, well, to get back to the UK, because that uh, I still had a little more on that. Uh, so I talked about sort of the election results. Labour did terrible. Tories did really well. Everybody else, meh. Scottish Nationalist Party did well. So questions about independence. Indie Ref 2 is what they're calling it on Twitter. Twitter always has catchy names for things. So what's sort of the general takeaway here from the British election? Um, one of the things that I kind of perceived there is that uh, Labour, the Labour Party's coalition between the working class and urban professionals seems to be falling apart. Like it's really not holding together very well at all at this point. And uh, the Tories for their part, the Conservative Party, they seem to be slowly becoming the party of the working class which is weird given British history, but uh, I was reading the other day, and I think I posted it on Twitter too, on my Twitter account. Uh, there was a story about a journalist who has experience with British politics, and he was talking about this one community, which had always been just reliably labor. They always voted for the Labour Party through thick and thin, and uh, that in this recent election, they had flipped to the Conservatives. And it was a thoroughly working class neighborhood, you know, just very prototypically labor territory, but they'd voted conservative and it just kind of blew his mind. He kind of couldn't believe it, you know, that this, and it just signifies the substantive nature of this change that's happening. And I think, uh, I think that just comes down to political realignment. You know, we're sort of in this era of significant economic, uh, economic churn that's sort of upsetting traditional notions of how to make a living, you know, traditional traditional livelihoods, and uh, it's creating waves politically and socially that are playing out, and political realignment seems to be one of the manifestations there. Uh, it really seems like uh, the working class in particular doesn't seem to have much, as much faith uh, in labor parties or center-left parties in general, since we see this uh, very similar phenomena playing out across most of the developed world, and even in in some of the developing world. Uh, whether or not that sticks or not, I don't know. That's kind of an open question, but for now there seems to be some skepticism of uh, the center-left. I think there's been some recovery over the past few years. Uh, I remember like five, ten years ago, people were talking about, uh, well, five years ago more like, I remember reading about, you know, the so-called collapse of the center-left and, uh, you know, what it, what the implications would be, and there were some dire predictions, but... Uh, Center-left seems to be hanging on to a degree. Uh, Scandinavia seems to be doing pretty well. They seem to have kind of recovered their ground a bit, but in other places it's a little more shaky. But in Britain, there really seems to be, uh, for now, a shift away. I don't know how substantive... Again, I, you know, to reiterate, I don't know how substantive or long-term that'll be, and that kind of gets into the, some of the other stuff here uh, that I have. So one of the problems that... Uh, to get into some of the takeaways here, one of, the, one of the statistics that I read, uh, labor lost votes in historically labor voting constituencies. Again, that kind of speaks to that realignment, um, especially in areas that voted leave in 2016. That's not going to surprise anybody. But uh, what I thought was interesting, labor also lost votes in constituencies that voted remain, which is counterintuitive. You know, if this election was kind of a vote on Brexit, you would think the remain voting ca counties would, uh, constituencies rather, would vote for labor. And for the most part, they did, but they actually lost votes in those areas uh, relative to the previous election. And the reasons for that are debatable. Um, 
It could just be that people just didn't like Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, if you're not familiar with British politics, Jeremy Corbyn is the head of the Labour Party, and he's kind of a controversial choice. He's kind of a controversial politician, I should say. Uh, the previous head of the Labour Party was a guy named, um, I forget his first name, but his last name was, I think, Milligan. And he was actually, his twin brother, I think, was also a politician. Somebody from the UK would know this better than I would, but I think both of the twins were involved in Labour politics, and I think were rivals at one point. Uh, but anyway, the head of the Labour Party had been Milligan. He was very much a centrist leftist, and uh, he was just not very charismatic. He just did not have, like, the magic. You know, he didn't have a lot of pull. He just couldn't inspire people. He didn't have, like, great ideas. I don't know that anybody really had great ideas in British politics back in, uh, I guess it would have been 2012, uh, the 2012 election. But uh, the conservatives had the benefit of not having been in power for a long time, so they were kind of the uh, opposition choice, you know, the choice for change, I guess. So Milligan's inability to really energize labor and to kind of come up with some new ideas to energize the voting electorate kind of doomed labor, and that resulted in almost 10-some years of uh, conservative governance. It's not 10 years yet, but it's getting there. And uh, after that, there was a big debate within the Labour Party about who should lead the party. And that debate reflected a broader debate about what the party's central ideas should be. You know, what is the Labour Party about? What are they pushing for? You know, what, uh, what is their soul? What is the soul of the Labour Party? Uh, more technically, what's their policy platform going to be? And obviously, the centrists all said, you know, we can't alienate people in the center. You know, we can't alienate people on the right. We should try to build a big tent coalition, blah, blah, blah. But that's basically what they'd been trying to do. And it, there wasn't a lot of support for that. People were not particularly excited for that. But there was this other guy named Jeremy Corbyn, along with a number of like-minded people who really pushed hard left, uh, old school socialist style policies. Not explicitly socialist, but... Uh, very much on the left side of the spectrum of uh, labor politics in the UK. And he ran hard on a pretty strong record of being an honest politician. And, you know, he wasn't like, a, he was almost, I guess, what people in the US would call a British Bernie Sanders to a degree. Although I don't know how well the analogy holds up to inspection. But roughly, that's kind of what he is in British politics, to draw an analogy. So there was a lot of skepticism of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Corbyn's ideas within the Labour Party, but nobody else could build a significant amount of support. There was just no energy. There was no passion. Uh, Corbyn's ideas were the only ones that did generate passion. He had a pretty excited, loyal you know, cohort of followers within the Labour Party and the Labour voting electorate. So he was able to win the leadership contest. And... Uh, People were pretty up. A lot of people were pretty upset, but a lot of people were also really excited because the far left of the Labour Party really finally had the party. You know, they were finally in a position to really push their ideas and compete for uh, power on a national level instead of within the party. So, you know, if you're from Britain and I'm getting this wrong, please correct me in chat. You know, maybe I should give the usual disclaimer. I'm not an. I'm definitely not an expert in everything I talk about. I have a stronger background in some areas than others, you know, economics, foreign policy, more. Uh, so if I say anything wrong, stupid, biased, whatever, please contribute in chat. You know, I want to learn more than anybody. And uh, I don't read chat while we do this, but I will read it after. 
So, you know, I will see what you write eventually. And uh, one of the things I really get out of this is getting feedback from people and getting information from people. And so, uh, you know, please do contribute that. Everybody else kind of learns from that as well. So it's just generally helpful. You know, participation is encouraged, uh, so to speak. So that said, if I'm getting this wrong, you know, please correct me. You know, British listeners, uh, you know, if you're out there, or, you know, anybody who's maybe more familiar with the topic than me. Uh, this is what I'm remembering uh, from what I've read in the news. So this is not like expert opinion here. You know, I'm not going to print it. I'm not going to pretend it is. Uh, but uh, this is this is just sharing my uh, understanding of the issue. So uh, that's my understanding of how Jeremy Corbyn came to head the Labour Party. And uh, so the big question then after that is whether or not Corbyn could really compete at a national level. And uh, in the in the last election, which was 2017, I guess, um, Labour did okay. They didn't really do great, but it was okay. And uh, there was a sense that maybe if they just really pushed those left ideals, you know, those uh, ideal leftist idealist policies that Corbyn was known for, then they could excite the electorate and really kind of make it in the uh, 2019 election that they just had. And it seems that that just catastrophically failed. Uh, to be fair to Corbyn, it's not necessarily just that a lot of people didn't like his ideas or maybe even just him himself. There was a bunch of controversies about anti-Semitism and t terrorism. I suspect some of those were trumped up, but uh, those were there as factors anyway. Uh, but I don't think it was just that people disliked him. You know, another factor is that uh, I think Corbyn, or you know, at least the general leadership of the Labour Party, kind of tried to please everybody on Brexit. You know, there was a lot of people in the Labour Party who voted for Brexit. It's not as though Labour was the Remain party and the Tories were the Leave party. Both parties actually have pretty significant constituents uh, and voters who voted for one or the other side. It's uh, They're not monolithic in that regard. And Corbyn kind of tried to please everybody by trying to stake a middle ground. He wasn't explicitly fighting for Remain, uh, but he didn't really come out expli explicitly for Leave either. And I think he wanted to really focus more on, you know, economic policy and economic reforms, you know, et cetera, sort of these big, uh, big tent ideas, you know, and the belief that those were kind of the big vote winners. But uh, as it happened, it seems that that hasn't been the case. And it could be um, that the vote against labor was not so much a vote against the ideas themselves, per se, but more maybe against the politics, that style of politics. You know, it may be that we've moved. Uh, as part of this general shift uh, in, you know, the general political realignment, uh, that that style of politics that focuses on economic policy is not as relevant as, say, a nationalist issue like immigration or Brexit or what have you. It may be that that's more the crux of politics going forward and that by eschewing it, uh, could serve the Corbin, Corbinites and labor and whatnot were not able to really maximize uh, their benefit in terms of who they were appealing to amongst the voting electorate. Uh, conservatives pretty pretty hard came out as the Brexit party. You know, Boris Johnson and his you know people in the Tories among the Tories were pretty clearly uh, for a hard well not a hard Brexit per se, but they wanted to quote unquote get Brexit done. I think that was one of their slogans. So it was pretty clear that if you wanted to vote for uh, a Brexit, you know explicitly for leave, explicitly for getting the UK out of the European Union, 
then voting for the Tories was the way to vote, since the Labour Party was kind of wishy-washy on just what they stood for on that. So those are some opinions on the subject. These are not, this is not like some professional analysis, but uh, I'm trying to kind of tie it into some stuff we've talked about before, which is political re realignment and structural economic change, etc. You know, people who are uh, working class voters who have kind of been left behind by a lot of the technological and free trade uh, evolutions that we've seen over the past few decades. They don't clearly have a place in sort of the new world that's emerging and they're they're kind of struggling and policymakers are struggling to kind of figure out what to do about it as we've discussed before i think over the long term it's a problem that solves itself because if you're a young person growing up you know currently uh then you can kind of see where the jobs are and you can kind of go you can structure your education accordingly to try to uh, maximize your competitiveness in that job market I think a lot of the discontent now comes from people who have older skill sets uh, but are older themselves and don't have a lot of time or resources to invest in updating their skills uh, or maybe don't have the information to know what skills to invest in. You know, so, so for them, all of this tumult, you know, all of this uh, structural economic change really puts them at a disadvantage because it's creating a lot of dynamism uh, for people who are not necessarily that flexible. Uh, who are not necessarily sufficiently flexible to really deal with it and uh, sort of bend with the times. So in so much as that's accurate, and there's some evidence for that as far as, uh, you know, if you look at the distribution of voters according to age, uh, leave voters are way disproportionately older and uh, remain voters in the UK were disproportionately younger. So maybe in the long term, you know, it's just the young voters eventually inherit the country and that they're not as upset by all of the changes that are happening in the economy because they're not really put out by them. Uh, ideally, there would be some policy you could implement that ameliorates all of the concerns amongst those people in the working class now who are struggling because of the changes and then things can kind of smooth out sooner, but there's not really a clear set of policies that would actually do that, hence the problems we have now. So. If that theory is true, then a lot of this is going to be temporary, short to medium term, like 15, 20 years, and then things kind of maybe not go back to normal, but reach a new equilibrium that is a lot less rocky than the current uh, politics that the developed world is experiencing right now. An optimistic reading, I know, but it's, uh, it's something anyway. <laughs> There's a lot of different ways you can interpret that. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent again. Um, Just a question from me of why are older people more opposed to leave and younger for stay? Uh, the, the older people are uh, for leave and the younger people are for remain. Uh, right. So the reason that for older people tend to be more conservative and that's the conservative choice. Yeah, that's part of it. But I think it also comes down to uh, things like, well, part of it is probably industry. You know, a lot of the working class places that used to vote labor are working class uh, neighborhoods that specialized in, you know, factories of one sort or another. And a lot of those have left. Uh, of those that have stayed, there's been a lot of people coming in from Europe who are immigrants, uh, like Eastern Europe or other places. And they've been kind of filling up a lot of those working class communities and creating some tension with some of the older folks there who kind of see the community changing. Uh, so dislike of immigration and the changes thereof and a sense that free trade is not benefiting them by, you know, sort of removing their traditional 
working class jobs. I think that makes a lot of them very skeptical about internationalism of any kind, you know, be it in the form of immigration or free trade deals or what have you. So there's a sense that globalism, as I think a lot of them would put it, is a net negative for the British economy and for them in particular. And so for those people, uh, they kind of want to move away from that for that reason. Uh, you know, for others, it is strictly about immigration. For others, it's uh, maximizing British sovereignty. There's always been a pretty decent sized chunk of the Conservative Party in the UK that never liked the UK joining the European Union and has been whining about it incessantly for the past, you know, 30, 40 years, however long it's been. And, uh, you know, winning that referendum was sort of their day in the sun. That was like a minor miracle for them. And uh, they've, they're certainly enjoying themselves right now. But they's all, they've always been there. They, that cohort never went away. Uh, but a lot of those guys are a little bit older, too. Uh, they tend to be of the older school of thought that wants to maximize British sovereignty because they see Britain as being sort of a special country that has a special role in the world and that they can better fulfill that role if they're not tied down by all these surly continentals, as they would call them. Uh, the continentals are sort of do things differently than they want. You know, generally older folks and especially older conservatives want less regulation, a more open, dynamic economy, et cetera. And there's a feeling amongst them that being in the European Union requires them to adjust British regulations to be too tight. You know, they want to kind of open things up and getting out of the European Union gives them an excuse to do that. So for the older folks in that sort of sovereignty crowd, uh, it's something that they've just always been for. So those are, those are a couple different reasons. Uh, I think younger folks generally, kind of like what I was arguing earlier, and maybe you could cite this as supporting evidence, uh, younger people generally are not as tied to those old economy type jobs. You know, the factories, the working class jobs, et cetera. Generally, they get into the services economy of once uh, get fighting for, a, you know, working in a services industry of one sort or another. You know, so for them, it's not really a net loss to lose those kinds of jobs or to have immigrants take them. Uh, they've kind of moved into other areas in order to benefit. And uh, also, I think younger people kind of see more benefit to the European Union in terms of freedom of travel, you know, well, freedom of travel slash freedom of movement, uh, the ease of access to continental education systems, uh, agreements on, you know, benefits, uh, you know, how you can live in other countries in the European Union, you know, all that stuff is more beneficial, you could argue, to younger people who move around more and are more uh, invested in the new economy, such as it is than older folks who are still kind of invested in the old economy and are feeling the pressure as uh, their communities kind of dwindle and due to the lack of uh, economic competitiveness and economically competitive industries. So that's- yeah, that makes sense. Older people tend to be more rooted as well with stuff like home ownership and the like, mm -hmm. where they kind of find out where they're gonna settle and they're really focused on what their community is like. Younger people have more of that, well, I have no idea what I want, who I am, or where I'm going, so whatever. Mm -hmm. And then millennials and Zoomers and stuff, like we're per capita owning homes a lot less, moving around more, and I think our mindset is more of a global mindset. A lot of people, I think, many times aren't considering themselves of a particular country. We're internet kids now. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a digital cosmopolitanism that uh, ties people together in a new way that hasn't really been possible before. 
So yeah, that I think that I think you're right. That probably does create more uh, more appeal for international institutions and international integration. So those are some factors there that could uh, explain some of that political realignment. That's also why I was saying earlier that it might be temporary because it could be that uh, once the older voters kind of age out, so to speak, uh, and the younger voters kind of move in and uh, you know fill that space, then uh, it may be that the opposition to further integration kind of dwindles with time as a result. So that's conjecture. It's not really clear. You know, long-term predictions are hard and you know un unreliable, to put it mildly. But uh, that could be the case. On the other hand, it could be a permanent realignment, in which case we could see uh, the Labour and Conservative parties in Britain sort of reorient their political platforms to reflect an emphasis on integration, you know, the degree to which countries integrate with each other and the degree to which there's uh, an integrated market in which labor and capital moves freely. Seen some of that now, but it's not, it's still not quite there as a fully explicit uh, demarcation between parties and the political coalitions that comprise the different parties certainly don't reflect that yet. You know, I think both parties are kind of trying to hold on to the old coalitions uh, to a degree, and uh, they're not really being very successful in that. So I think over time they're going to start uh, trying to search for new coalitions, and eventually we'll see more clear, more clear-cut voting constituencies and uh, policy platforms that will demarcate them. <clears throat> there was a question that's semi-related to this discussion. Scotland holds another independence referendum. What is the likelihood that Northern Ireland would follow? An independence referendum? N yes. No chance. Northern Ireland is not interested in independence, uh, as far as I know. Um, the big debate in Northern Ireland is more about uh, whether or not Northern Ireland should integrate into the Republic of Ireland. So I don't think there's any chance of an independence vote. Uh, the, the major constituencies in Northern Ireland are the Irish and the Protestants. And uh, the Protestants want to stay a part of the UK. You know, that's why they're called unionists. They're for, they're for maintaining the union with the rest of uh, the UK. And the Irish, in turn, are generally more Irish nationalists and want to see Northern Ireland united with the Republic of Ireland in order to create a united island uh, in which the Irish nation is rendered whole again, as they might say. So I don't think I don't think independence is in the cards, but I do remember reading, and I thought this was pretty interesting, that part of the peace agreement, I think it was the Good Friday Agreement, uh, by which the time of troubles was ended. Uh, that is to say, the violence between the Protestants and Irish in Northern Ireland. Part of that agreement is apparently that if there is a substantive demographic change or a substantive shift in political opinion, that there can be a referendum in Northern Ireland on whether to join Ireland. And apparently the demographics of Northern Ireland are changing such that the Irish are making up a larger and larger proportion of the population. So we could actually see uh, a referendum there. I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but I think this is this is how it was going to work. I I think there is a good chance that there will be a referendum there in the round 2020 or so. Well, I, that's next year, so maybe not so soon. A couple of years down the line, not not too far down the line, in which Northern Ireland 
could very well vote to join Ireland, in which case you could see Northern Ireland break off from the UK. So that's a distinctive possibility from what I read. Uh, so, you know, between that and uh, Scotland potentially getting independence, it's looking like it could just be England and Wales, if that does actually pan out like that. For those of you who don't know this, and this is some random trivia, I guess, but uh, some people might not be aware of this, there's a difference between the United Kingdom and Great Britain and England. All of these are sort of different territories. The United Kingdom refers to the entire country, and you can kind of see that because United Kingdom is actually short for United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So Great Britain then is does not include Northern Ireland. Great Britain is just England, Scotland, and Wales. So that entire island of uh, Britannia or whatever you want to call that, uh, that's its own thing. That's Great Britain. And then Northern Ireland is separate, hence the name United Kingdom. And then England is just one of the polities that comprise Great Britain. Uh, it's easily the largest in terms of geographic size and population, uh, but it is technically just one of them, next to Wales and Scotland. So in the future, we may not have a United Kingdom, basically. If Northern Ireland does actually leave and join Ireland, uh, they would have to change their name because it wouldn't be the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland anymore. It would be just it would just be Great Britain at that point. And if Scotland leaves, you could still call it Great Britain, but it would just be uh, just be that England and then a little bit the little territory of Wales over there on the west. So that'll be something to watch for going forward. <clears throat> so let's see, I had a little more on the uh, British election here. Uh, turnout in, turnout in uh, labor constituencies, well, sorry, turnout in consti constituencies that voted leave was slightly lower. So they may have been turned off by uh, the choices available to them. It could be that they wanted to vote for a leave candidate, but didn't feel that labor was really sufficiently leave to justify their vote. So let's see, all told, some leavers... Uh, some labor who voted for leave in the Brexit election voted probably voted for the conservatives, again, reflecting that political realignment. But then also there was a surprising number of labor voters who just didn't turn out to vote, uh, or maybe who voted for conservatives as uh, what they perceived as the lesser, two, lesser of two evils, because uh, perhaps they didn't like uh, Corbyn and some of his proposed reforms. So all told, it was... Uh, it seems to have been weak strategy by the Labour Party. And uh, if you wanted to vote for a candidate or a party, more accurately, that represented your interest in Remain, you didn't really have a clear-cut candidate to really vote for. Um, I guess Liberal Democrats were probably uh, the party that was the most explicitly Remain, but they don't seem to have had a lot of... They didn't seem to be able to generate a lot of uh, support out of that position. So let's see, uh, talked about the S&P. Oh, so something else to watch. Um, since the Conservative Party is basically now becoming a coalition between traditional conservatives in Britain, whom are sort of business elites and uh, you know middle class uh, type folks, 
there's a there's a growing coalition between those conservatives and the conservative nationalist working class. And that's kind of an awkward coalition, since obviously their interests are somewhat divergent in terms of economic interests. And it's going to be very interesting to watch how that coalition shakes out in the medium term. Uh, it could work in the long term, but the coalition and the government is going to have to generate opportunities for working class folks in order to really kind of maintain their support. But it's kind of unclear now um, just how many labor-intensive industries are even really left in Britain that really employ a lot of working-class people. And more to the point, how labor-intensive industries are really going to benefit from Brexit, which is pending. Um, it seems like that's going to be a headwind for a lot of industries. So I don't know that labor-intensive uh, industries are really going to benefit that much from it. But I could be wrong on that. We'll see. But that's going to be an open question. Uh, it could be, and this is something that we're kind of seeing in its beginning stages here in the U.S., it could be that the conservative party recognizes that they can't really do much to really improve conditions for the working class uh, explicitly, either through subsidies or you know welfare or through free market reforms of one sort or another or free trade deals. It may be instead that they just use patronage, that they give protectionist measures to industries that are labor-intensive, uh, or that they give explicit subsidies to such industries, or uh, maybe they generate a lot of subsidies for communities uh, that are struggling, uh, something to that effect, just basically some kind of sort of traditional patronage style politics where you're just sort of winning over their vote with uh, de facto economic support. So that could be a possibility. And over in the United States, we kind of see this with uh, some of the nominal protectionist measures that have been implemented, like for uh, the steel industry and the aluminum industry. That's not explicit patronage per se, because it's couched in uh, policy terms as a retaliation for dumping of steel and aluminum, which is legitimate to a degree. But it's also It's also um, rationalized in terms of uh, nationalism and protecting industries and propping up American-owned uh, industries and workers, etc. And that kind of gets away more from the economic justification as being pure retaliation and moves more into the political realm of being a form of reward uh, for political support. And obviously there's a fine line between, uh, you know, patronage, which is a kind of corruption, and uh, legitimate interest, uh, which argues that this is the best, you know, this is the best policy for the country. It props up communities, middle class, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is a kind of a fine line there. And the reason I would paint it as patronage is because it does mark a pretty clear break with traditional policy. That's not a bad thing. It could work out in the long run. But at the moment, it seems like it could be a solution to that problem I was talking about before, about how to try to improve the conditions of working class folks who have seen their traditional livelihoods disrupted by free trade deals, technology, uh, structural economic change in general, you know, et cetera. Uh, how do you kind of deal with that problem policy-wise? And it could be that there's no real good traditional policy that you can use, and maybe the only thing you really can do is to, is to just try to uh, pander to them and uh, sort of give them resources uh, explicitly or implicitly in the form of some kind of what would have been considered in a previous era kind of patronage. So right now, that's in its early stages. It's not explicitly patronage right now, 
but it could grow into it in the future. Uh, that remains to be seen, but that's that's definitely something I'm kind of keeping an eye on. That would definitely be a pretty negative outcome in a lot of ways, but a potential benefit to that would be that it would ease political tensions and address that uh, structural problem there. And so conservatives may do that in the UK just to try to maintain that somewhat unwieldy coalition that they're building. So something, a final note here. I know I'm droning on about this at this point. Uh, it's worth noting that the difference in voting share between parties that were pro-leave and parties that were pro-remain was much closer than the number of seats. Uh, Pro-Brexit parties, be they the Conservative Party or UKIP, only got about 46% of the vote. So not like a clear majority in terms of voting share. Uh, you know, if you're wondering how it is that they were, they got such a relatively low voting share, but a relatively high number of seats, that has to do with uh, the UK's electoral system, which is first past the post. And uh, as a result of that, there's generally, like a lot of systems like that, some irregularities uh, as far as the match between seat share in parliament and voting share. Uh, I think in a lot of, in some cases, uh, Labour's, well, I shouldn't say Labour, but uh, the vote was split in the, a number of constituencies between different parties, and as a result, uh, conservatives were able to win without a majority. So some constituencies like were that uh, were like that, but I don't know how many relative to the whole. Uh, regardless, even though they only got 46% of the vote, they have a clear majority in Parliament, and they're going to be able to move forward with Brexit, among other you know sundry conservative reforms that I'm sure they'll try to pass. But the reason I point that out, though, beyond talking about Britain's electoral system, uh, Johnson is not going to have like a really strong mandate as far as public support. Obviously, half the country like really loves Brexit. Other half very much does not do so. Uh, that's going to manifest in different ways in terms of potential unrest or etc. Uh, you know, just in terms of the votes in Parliament, he's obviously going to be able to do whatever he wants pretty much, but... Uh, he's not going to do it without some pushback if he pushes things too far. And uh, there were some protests, I think, on election night from some anarchists or something. I saw that on Reddit, but it doesn't seem to have been, it doesn't seem to have represented a broader protest against uh, the government and the election's outcome. But I wouldn't be surprised if Johnson pushes his luck too hard. If he governs like he has more of the mandate than he actually has, as represented by the voting chair. There actually could be protests because I think that could be the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of uh, electoral reform, which is something that everybody in British politics has talked about at one point or another over the past couple decades. But nobody ever does anything about it because it's hard. And whenever they're in power, it generally doesn't benefit them. You know, generally it's the opposition, be it Labour or Tories, that talks about uh, electoral reform and then they get into power and all of a sudden it's not a priority. So... That could change if there's a significant protest movement as a, in reaction to some strong arm move on the part of the Johnson administration. But I don't know if he's going to, I don't know if that's going to happen. It may not even happen even if he does push his luck, but that would be something to kind of keep an eye on. You know, electoral reform isn't really something people get excited about, but in the right set of circumstances, it could be. And given how contentious politics is in Britain, you know, among other places, that it's not too much of a stretch to think that uh, electoral reform could end up being a significant driver of unrest of some kind, depending on context. So that could be interesting. So we'll see.
Awesome. This has been fun. It seems like we've been able to go deeper in a couple areas, primarily the region around India and then also Britain. Yeah, sometimes my memory actually works. <laughs> sometimes it's it does better. Sometimes it does better than it does at other times. So, uh, seems well, to... with this particular scenario, oftentimes if you can focus on a tighter area, then you're going to be able to recall more memory just because you're touching on more of those associations you have than if you're hitting a bunch of questions and your mind is kind of all over the place. It's harder to go deeper. Yeah, I agree. You know, having focus definitely helps. So thank you for providing the uh, stage for that, you know, the framing. That's uh, kind of makes things a little easier. No problem. So was there anything else that caught your eye, Neuro? I think those were the big things that I noticed. It's the Britain elections. There were a bunch of people who were hyped. That always makes me happy when people are hyped about some of the more non-gaming content that I do. Mm -hmm. uh, they were like, yo, what is Agent Smith's thoughts on the British election? It's like, I don't know. We skipped the session because my sleep was messed up, but we'll hit it next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a pretty big election. It's uh, There's going to be some significant changes. I would think that the Labor Party is going to think about changing leadership. Corbyn has already come out and said that he's not going to lead the party in the next election. So it seems like he's going to step down at some point. He hasn't really made it clear when, but it seems like he's uh, pretty tacitly admitted that uh, the party isn't going to move forward with him. So that would suggest that uh, that would suggest a pretty significant setback for some of uh, the people who support him and the ideas that Corbyn represents. I don't think they'll go away completely. I think they're always going to be there in the Labour Party to some capacity. But uh, I don't think it's going to be the driving force like it's been under Corbyn uh, for the past couple of years. I don't know what they will do. You know, this kind of resets Labour to where it was after it lost... Uh, the elections back in 2012, you know, when Cameron kind of came to power. Uh, you know, they were kind of soul-searching then for some kind of coherent policy platform that they could run on beyond just generic center-leftist type stuff. And uh, they tried Corbyn, and that doesn't seem to have worked. So what now? That's going to be a very interesting question to see going forward, because that's a very similar problem faced by a number of uh, left or center-left parties around the developed world. We'll see. Well, yeah, it's been, there's been stuff happening the past couple of weeks. It's just, I don't think a lot of it is going to stick. Like the Iran protests, I don't think are going to be like long lasting. I just don't think there's enough challenge to the Iranian government right now in Iran in terms of challenges to its legitimacy and uh, in terms of weakness in the government's ability to suppress dissent. You know, they seem to be in pretty good position on those accounts. I could be wrong, you know, I don't, I'm not an insider, so what do I know, but yeah, I'm a little skeptical. I'm a little skeptical it'll go anywhere. I really don't think the economic strategy is going to work 
I don't think it's a bad idea per se to put sanctions on Iran, but I don't think it's going to result in regime change or revolution. It, uh, I just don't see like uh, the root factors kind of needed for that in Iran right now. You know, the country definitely has liberals in it, especially in Tehran and the bigger cities, but I don't think that there's enough of them or that they're influential enough to really institute change by themselves if they did try to do like a revolt or a protest movement or, you know, something like that. There's still a lot of socially conservative people who in Iran who prefer or at least tolerate uh, the Islamic Republic and that form of governance and who maybe don't entirely trust liberals living in big cities. You know, they've got that urban-rural divide just like anybody else. So I don't know that there's much that's really going to be able to come from that in the short term. I could see institutional reform driven from the inside. You know, we've already seen some of that to a degree. Uh, but I don't know how substantive it can be. It could be, but I think there would have to be like a pretty significant shift in power between uh, the right wing of uh, the insiders, such as they are, you know, the Ayatollah and the IRGC on the one side, and then a pretty significant shift over to the other side of the spectrum, you know, amongst the reformists. That's... One sobering aspect of trying to make sense of all this as a person who browses news and follows different things is the people who do journalism and reporting and posting of articles they're doing this as their job. So sometimes there's a story that's hyped up a little bit. Sometimes it's hyped up a whole bunch for the purpose of getting clicks and being able to make money and pay rent and things like that. So sometimes there will be situations that come up where it's presented in a way that, oh man, shit is hitting the fan now. Like everything's going to change and be different. But if you really look at the details of it and you think about what is the statistical likelihood that a major change is going to happen as a result of this. Sometimes it's super low, which can be kind of disappointing, but that's something to guard yourself against when you're consuming news and media is you can't always take the reports at face value. Sometimes they're hyping it up largely because that's the way that you get attention with articles and stuff in this clickbait era of information. As a content creator, I even try to do that with the way that my posts and things are titled because you can have a more bland title that may be more accurate versus one that's kind of spicy. It catches the eye. It seems more dramatic than maybe the situation actually is, but that's how you get someone to click into your content. So this kind of thing happens a ton with world news. And that's the nice thing about having you on is you have more of that larger perspective than many of us. Well, I try to have one anyway. It can be hard to keep up. <laughs> no, the world's a big place with a lot of people who have a lot of things to say. Yeah, sure does. Well, cool. We're right at two hours, so I think between the two and three hour window is one of those we base it on your energy kind of things. I know it's one twenty a.m. Texas time, 11.20 Pacific time. Yeah, pretty early. Well, I guess there is one story I wanted to get to at least. Did we have any questions? I mean, beyond the ones that you already shared? No, it's been more of a cozy evening. There was some feedback about uh, Iran and the history there, which I think you can 
catch up with in the chat after. I didn't really know how to interpret it. Sometimes you'll say stuff and they'll be like, nah. -uh. And it's like, well, <laughs> I don't know if it's worth interrupting you to pass along a nah -uh because well, I, I don't. Could, I could easily be wrong. It certainly wouldn't be the first time. You know, a lot of that Iran stuff I got from a foreign affairs article I read, uh, I think a year or two ago. So, you know, besides that being a long time, I may not have remembered it correctly. I, the article itself may have had inaccuracies. So there's plenty of room for me to be wrong on the subject. It's definitely not something I'm an expert in. You know, I really need to uh, study Middle Eastern history in general more because I'm more familiar with the modern history, but I haven't really studied like uh, medieval to early modern history as much. So that's kind of something I'm weak in. So yeah, that's, uh, I could easily have made some mistakes there. Feedback definitely appreciated, if so. Yeah, I typed that in the chat uh, instead of saying something aloud. If you've got a correction, he wants to hear it. Like yes. You don't have to. Yes, you don't have to be mad at Agent Smith. He's not super married to any particular point that he's trying to make. It's about the pursuit of truth over time. So if you have a better truth than he does, then that's a win for him. He's not trying to beat you in a debate. <laughs> Agent Smith versus Twitch Chad. Live debate Sunday evenings. Well, Twitch chat will probably win that most of the time. <laughs> well, let's see. Know. Well, there was one. You. There was one story I, I did want to try to get to tonight. If we don't do any others, and um, I don't really know how to frame it because it's kind of a weird one. And this is actually I actually shared the article on Twitter. Uh, I think it was uh, yesterday or the day before or something like that. So how do you? Nero, how do you feel about lawyers? Well, I think they're very competitive people, generally speaking. And the stereotype, I don't know a ton of lawyers, but the stereotype is they're pretty cutthroat and oftentimes are more focused on winning the case than making sure that justice is served mm. correctly. I think that's a very common impression among a lot of people, especially those critical of lawyers. So, yeah, but there's also the kind of lawyer that does a bunch of boring, tedious stuff. Yeah. Like I'm, patent law and things like this, where you're getting really deep into some very boring and convoluted text. Yeah, that's a fair point. That is probably the far more common type of lawyer. You know, I think a lot of jobs are like that. It's uh, people have exciting perceptions and then the reality is generally more mundane. So, yeah, I think lawyer probably falls in that category. But my follow-up question then, now that you've illustrated sort of the general impression of lawyers, uh, how do you think it would weigh on people's mind? Well, how do you think people would perceive uh, a horde of lawyers attacking a hospital? What in the heck? <laughs> is this a movie? What? No, this is a. This was an actual event this past week. Like an army of lawyers with like sword and shield, just going ham with a bunch of like legalese at them or something. No, they used their fists. They uh, they attacked a hospital, destroyed equipment, you know, overturned things. It's the whole. They literally attacked the hospital. <laughs> They're just punching the building. So the genesis of this 
And this happened in Pakistan, by the way. Uh, the genesis of this, roughly, from what I can remember, and maybe Chad can fill in some of the details, uh, there, was a, there was a lawyer who passed away. He was in the hospital. And so about half a dozen or so of his uh, associates uh, in the lawyer's association, such as it is in Pakistan, uh, about half a dozen of them came to pay respects at the hospital. And uh, I don't remember the details. I don't even know if they shared them. But somehow there was a fist fight between those lawyers and some of the doctors at the hospital. <laughs> so things escalated very quickly. Now, after that fight, uh, both the lawyers and the doctors at the hospital both complained to their respective associations within Pakistan. And both of those associations in turn initiated litigation and started making demands of the other side, demanding apologies and restitution, demanding that the government get involved and arrest the people on the other side who they believe were responsible. It turned into a big debate. So the government got involved and there was a negotiation and eventually there was an agreement made. And both sides were pacified. So one of the things that was going to happen is that some of the lawyers involved were going to go to the hospital and they would receive an apology. <clears throat> that was the plan. And then that would, be, that would have been the end of it. But the trouble was one of the doctors that had been involved went on to social media and gloated that they had humiliated the lawyers in the fight. And that's when the shit started. <laughs> After that, the Lawyers Association, I guess, mobilized, for lack of a better word, and they just ransacked this hospital where the incident had happened in retaliation for this perceived insult. And they went around and they busted machinery and, you know, they knocked over. They did all kinds of shit. They fought with doctors like it was a whole, it was a raid, in effect. They raided the hospital. And, uh... It wasn't like benign either. There was like, I think, several people there in the hospital who needed attention who didn't get it and died as a result. So there's a big shitstorm in the Pakistani media right now about how terrible a light this casts on Pakistan, you know, how it shows the weakness of the rule of law, the rule of law in Pakistan, how it reflects very poorly on Pakistani lawyers. You know, it's, uh, it has not been a good look, suffice to say. It is not great PR for anybody involved. But it did happen. If you were in that hospital on that particular day, you would have been sitting there minding your business only for a horde of people in business suits to randomly run in and start wrecking shit. Man, I'm having two visceral reactions to this. <laughs> the adult in me is like, this is some of the stupidest shit I have ever heard in my entire life. And the kid in me is like, this is the most awesome shit I've ever heard in my whole life. When is the movie coming out? <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, it's pretty weird. I want to see a montage now of the doctors, like, getting trained. Like, they all go on a retreat where they're all training MMA together to get ready to fight the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> they line up for a medieval-style battle. Let's go. Wow. Yeah, that is a thing that happened. Now... Lest you get a bad impression of Pakistani lawyers from this story, which I think many people will understand. Now this improves so. my perception of lawyers. <laughs> well, 
Pakistani lawyers actually have um, more significance than you might think in Pakistan. Because uh, in Pakistan, uh, the legal system, you know, the judicial system, if you want to call that, is probably the most developed institution in Pakistan next to the military. You know, it's relatively evolved, it's relatively professional, uh, etc. As compared to, say, you know, the political establishment, the administration, and administrative agencies, etc., you know, stuff like that. And uh, as a result, they've played a pretty important role in Pakistani history, especially in Pakistan's modern history. Uh, generally, when there has been military government in Pakistan over the past 50, 60 years, which has been pretty frequent, uh, lawyers have been at the forefront of the push to reintroduce democracy. And uh, generally, they've been important leaders and an important part of Pakistani civil society in general. Uh, that helps prop up what democratic culture they have. And that played a really important role more recently, I think around the year 2000, when General Musharraf uh, was still in power. He was a military dictator. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name. Uh, but General Musharraf was in power, and uh, he became increasingly unpopular over time because of, one, corruption, of course, uh, but also because a lot of Pakistanis were upset with his authoritarian rule in general. You know, they wanted to return to democracy. Musharraf had overthrown uh, a democratically elected leader, uh, Nawaz Sharif, I think his name was. He actually came back later. He's also very corrupt, but he was democratically elected. And Musharraf got rid of him, seized power. Tensions grew over time, especially in civil society. And it was actually the lawyers and the lawyers association in Pakistan that took the lead in starting mass protests against the Musharraf government that eventually resulted in him resigning and the reintroduction of democratic governance in Pakistan. So they are an important part of Pakistani civil society and important, important actors in Pakistani history uh, above and beyond their uh, apparent feud with the Doctors Association uh, in Pakistan. Not only other lawyers in Pakistan, the experts at law, they're also one of the more viable and powerful street gangs <laughs> <laughs> with an especially violent rivalry with the doctors. <laughs> Someone in the chat was saying that the engineers are going to come in and start fighting too. <laughs> well, you never know. All the different white collar professions are just duking it out. It would be an interesting battle to watch. <laughs> As someone has Moss Neotech said, it's kind of like the Anchorman scene where the different news stations are getting different pitchforks and tridents and fighting each other. So that's uh, that's Pakistan. That's the, <laughs> that was the big news out of there recently. It's uh, maybe not the most important news in Pakistan, but it was it definitely caught my eye. So let's see. Uh, I think we've got time for some more. Did we want to do Lebanon? I had a whole bunch of notes on Lebanon about what's been going on there, but I don't know. Would you be interested in that? Hell yeah. I don't know shit about it. Okay. That's the best. Where you just go in with a fresh perspective of zero knowledge. Well, hopefully I don't add more confusion. Well, it's hard to be confused when you don't have any information. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> it can be achieved if you work hard enough at it. It can be achieved. I've certainly done that to myself plenty of times.
Oh, before actually, before we get to that, though, let me make a quick recommendation. Um, there's an institution, uh, I guess it's a think tank in Europe called the European Council of Foreign Relations, uh, the ECFR. And recently, uh, well, they've had a podcast for some time, you know, just regular episodes, just sort of general foreign policy talk, you know, nothing like too big or dramatic, just sort of generic discussion by academics uh, for the most part. But recently they had a short, I think, four or five episode series uh, on 1989, which is not something I've, I think I've really addressed, but it is uh, the 30th anniversary of 1980. It's been 30 years since 1989. And uh, 1989 obviously was a pretty big, wait, 30 years? My math is off. It's 30 years. That's my birth year. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 30 years is right. Uh, that was a, obviously a seminal year in uh, world history because, you know, the Cold War ended, uh, democratization, uh, you know, the opening of the world economy, you know, a whole bunch of important stuff happened in 1989. It was a pretty significant year. So uh, I hadn't really been paying much attention to it, but the ECFR podcast uh, ran a couple episodes interviewing people from different countries about, you know, the impact of 1989 and the events thereof on their country. So, you know, they had a China researcher talk about, you know, the impact on China. And they also don't just, they don't just talk about 1989. They also talk about uh, history since then, you know, and how, uh, international relations and uh, economic ties have evolved since then. Uh, so they had a, like a China episode, they had a U.S. episode, a Russia episode. Uh, I think they also had a kind of an Eastern Europe episode. Uh, I think those are probably also a Western Europe episode, but I don't think I saw that one. And probably some more I missed, but those were the main ones that I've listened to so far, and they're pretty good. You know, they're pretty informative, and it's just interesting history in general. So anybody who's interested in history and wants to learn more about 1989 and some of the history there, uh, I would definitely give that, I would definitely recommend that uh, short couple of episodes and over on the EACFR uh, podcast site. So some, something for you uh, history lovers to check out, if so inclined. Sweet. You can also check out my podcast, but that's probably not going to be as engaging. I'm, uh, I'm definitely still learning the art of uh, production values and presentation. So if you've got uh, a strong constitution, give my podcast a try. But definitely, if you're interested in history, give the CFR guys a try. I think they did a pretty good job with that. Well, you have a very good manner of speaking. It's smooth and eloquent and all that so i think certain like full-time content creators are really good at the pizzazz of production and yeah that's uh it can be an edge but in my opinion it's not the most important thing a lot of people have said that this is the most relaxing political information they've ever heard in their entire life <laughs> which is a its own distinct edge and i think pizzazz can sometimes work against that so the best approach for content creation, in my opinion, is to find out what your style is and then to refine and polish that style rather than to see another creator who's successful, but their approach doesn't really fit your approach. And if you try to emulate that, it would kind of seem forced rather than like the best version of what you do. Yeah. I talked about this a bunch with regards to comedy and creative improv and stuff. And Kukio was basically my sparring partner in terms of skit and comedy improv and jokes. 
-hmm. A lot of times when you try to make jokes and be funny or do a funny voice, it's crap. It's just not funny. You don't really connect the dots that well. Maybe the voice that you do, it, the accent that you're trying to put on, it's like it's not British, it's Australian-ish, but then you like do some Irish. But if you've practiced it for years and years and years and you've been bad for a long time, you get to be kind of decent. And then you end up being excellent and then people see an excellent joke or a really convincing accent like, man, you're just so gifted at this. And it's like, I wish you heard all the really bad jokes and all the half-assed accents that I was trying to do along the way, you would be maybe less amazed at the talent and more amazed at the dedication despite the poor execution along the way. So don't be discouraged. Well, I'll keep at it. I think part of the problem is the writing. I'm, I think I, it sounds like I'm reading from a script, I think, and that's not really great. I would like it to be a little more engaging so try to more, at least sound more spontaneous, just so that it doesn't sound like you're listening to somebody read from the phone book, you know? Mm. That's kind of more the direction I would want to take it, and probably will, since I'm, <laughs> I'm damn sure not going to do another two-year research stint. You know, I'm going to definitely try for more regular postings, as you recommended. So I think, uh, yeah, I think I'll still use scripts, but maybe not lean on them quite so hard like I am now. But anyway, uh, Lebanon. So, I mean, you know what like Lebanon is, right? You know, just as a country and sort of yep. roughly the rough contours. It's like, uh, for maybe those of you who are not familiar with Lebanon, it's a small country in the Levant, in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's an Arab country. Pretty, I think everybody there is ethnically Arab, but there's a lot of diversity in terms of uh, religion. That's always kind of been the distinctive thing about Lebanon. It used to have a majority Christian population, but since then there's been a lot of demographic change and now the Christians are, uh, I think, a slight minority. And the other two big sectarian groups are Shia Islam. Uh, well, I should say uh, Shia Muslims. And then the third group is a weird Muslim group called the Druze. Uh, there are other, I think, I think there are some other groups too, but those are easily the three major ones. The Druze are kind of weird. They're kind of like Muslim Mormons. Because the Druze as a sect were founded by a guy who just kind of came out and said that he was God. Something to that effect. And he had enough people who kind of went along with it to form their own little thing over there. So now that's now that's a sect. Obvi As you can imagine, a lot of conservative Muslims don't really consider the Druze to be an actual Muslim group. But the Druze themselves insist that they are. And, well, they survived the Civil War anyway. So <laughs> you can't really, you can't count them out. You can't just ignore them. So they, they are a significant faction there in their own right. Uh, Lebanon used to be a major, well, it still is, Lebanon is a major tourist center. Uh, it was kind of known as the Paris of the East way back in the early mid-20th century because of all the places in the Middle East, uh, the city of Beirut, you know, the biggest city and capital of Lebanon was sort of known for being a little more raunchy, a little more open, a little more liberal, you know, etc. And uh, what happened was the Civil War happened, uh, starting in roughly the 
1975, I think, mid-late 70s thereabouts, and that civil war was fought partly over demographic changes that were that was disrupting the balance of power between the Christians and Muslims in Lebanon, uh, but also it had a little bit of a proxy war thrown into it. The Israelis were supporting the Christians, and the Syrians were supporting the... Uh, who were they supporting? They were supporting the Palestinians, for one. That was why the Israelis got involved in the first place. But I think they were also supporting the... Yeah, they were supporting the Shia Muslims as well, because I think they helped start Hezbollah, if I remember correctly. Because Hezbollah started up as a resistance organization fighting against uh, the Israeli military presence in southern Lebanon, if I remember correctly. So the Lebanese civil war uh, turned into a giant shit show. A lot of people died, and Beirut was not really so much the Paris of the East for the duration. It was a little too violent and unpredictable, but eventually the war did end. I think in the late 80s, early 90s, thereabouts, and then a few years later in like 1998 or so, the Israelis finally pulled out of uh, Lebanon as well. Well, not so much the Syrians, but that came later. <laughs> the Israelis pulled out in the late 90s. And then I think there was a big assassination of the president, uh, a guy named Hariri, way back in like 2004, thereabouts. And the result of that was uh, widespread disgust in Lebanon and mass protests against the Syrian government, which was suspected of having orchestrated the assassination, since Hariri was kind of a nominally pro-Western uh, leader in Lebanon. So the result of that is that Syria kind of pulled out the troops and intelligence agents that it didn't allegedly have. <laughs> Supposedly, they weren't there, but after that uh, protest movement, they actually did pull them out, and uh, that significantly mitigated Syrian influence in Lebanon. So at that point, uh, the civil war had been over for a while, but at that point, you know, the uh, legacy had kind of finally started to wind down. Uh, the peace agreement that was signed itself basically just divided power in government between the two major factions. And so uh, I think the way it works is it's something like uh, the president is Christian and the prime minister is Shia and the, what the speaker of the house is supposed to be Druze, something like that. I don't remember the exact distribution, but it reflects the uh, what the Iraqi government did after the U.S. invasion. I think we had a big long talk about that uh, in our last uh, session. So that's pretty much what they did. They had a sectarian distribution of power in the government that institutionalized sectarian differences. And kind of like with Iraq, that did not really have a great effect on uh, the health of uh, Lebanese democracy and political institutions, which kind of brings us up to today. It skips over a lot of stuff, but uh, roughly that's where Lebanon is coming from. Uh, it's kind of was anyway still recovering from civil war, was a little bit unstable politically. And uh, well, I guess I should also point out that that rebel group Hezbollah that I mentioned is actually the most powerful military force in Lebanon. They're more powerful than the Lebanese army easily. They've been getting a lot of support over the years from the Iranian government because they're the principal anti-Israeli force in Lebanon, if not also the Levant in general. So they're a super powerful militia. They've got long-range missiles, ballistic missiles, you know, a huge arsenal of weapons. As far as militias go, Hezbollah is about as top-notch as you can get uh, without being an actual army. So Hezbollah has a lot of political power in Lebanon as a result, uh, correspondingly. So that's more or less, there was more or less a, 
uh, a shaky equilibrium in Lebanon politically between the different factions. And over the past 30 years, Lebanon's been relatively peaceful and it was able to re return to being a significant tourist destination as a result. You know, of all the countries in the Middle East over the past couple decades, Lebanon has definitely been one of the less violent ones anyway. Obviously, there was the big 2006 war between Hezbollah and Israel, but that wasn't as destructive as, uh, say, Iraq uh, or certainly as the Syrian civil war has been. So that's a quick review. So that brings us to today. Uh, the Lebanese government and the major political leaders in Lebanon really lean on patronage as their principal political policy platform. That's the main way that they get and maintain uh, the support of the people that they allegedly represent. Again, most of the parties are principally sectarian. You know, there's a Christian party, a Muslim party, etc. Um, there's some competition there. I think one of the big Christian parties is called Amal, and they're actually allied with Hezbollah. Uh, they've both been getting in trouble for, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <clears throat> uh, so the point is, though, that there's been a shaky equilibrium. Uh, people don't particularly like Hezbollah outside of the Shia Muslim community, but they maintain a lot of support because they offer a lot of services, a lot of social welfare programs. Uh, they kind of give out money, basically. And they get that from their uh, power in government as well as, you know, from aid from Iran and, you know, other sources. So patronage is the big thing in Lebanese politics. That's just how politics works. And the result is that public services in Lebanon are pretty garbage because you don't put people in charge of Lebanese public services based on how competent they are. You put them in there based on whether or not they support you. You know, that's part of what patronage is all about. You reward people who support you with money, with jobs, etc., Jobs in government are particularly valuable because they generally come with a lot of protections, a lot of job security, which people like. And so those are very popular, and politicians and political parties give those out willy-nilly as best they can. Uh, a really good case study of this, uh, getting, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I think this is a, a, a good example. A couple of years ago, there was a big disagreement over garbage collection. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the crux of it was, but uh, basically the different political parties couldn't agree on how garbage collection would be done. And so they just stopped. Uh, garbage collection in Beirut just ended because of this dispute. And it dragged on for months and months. And uh, garbage was piling up and it just got to be a real problem. You know, I mean, it was a health hazard. So eventually, some people started to try to do it themselves. They actually organized basically community garbage collection uh, to try to get around the parties uh, and the dispute. And what happened is some of the parties and their people actually started attacking those people. Uh, some of the uh, you know party thugs basically would go after them. And the reason is that uh, garbage collection was a source of revenue for the party. You know that was a source of patronage, and it was something that they wanted for their supporters. And to have communities do it. Uh, themselves, even if it was for free, meant money out of the pockets of the patronage network and the people therein. So that was an explicit threat to uh, the party and its revenues. And as a result, there was actual violence over garbage collection. So, so not only was there not garbage collection, you were actively being punished for trying to collect it yourself. 
Uh, I don't know that that was necessarily ubiquitous. I don't know that people all over Beirut were being chased down and hunted because they were trying to get rid of their garbage. Uh, <laughs> but there was at least one case where that happened. I remember reading about it uh, some years ago. So that really illustrates the depth of patronage politics in Lebanon. You know, that really is an important source of revenue for the parties, an important source of legitimacy. And for a lot of people in Lebanon, which has a high unemployment rate, relatively speaking, especially amongst youth, uh, those are pretty good jobs if you can get them. And if uh, somebody's threatening to take them away, uh, that's going to get a response out of you. People will respond very negatively to that. So that's a quick snapshot of uh, patronage politics in Lebanon. So there's poor public services as a result. People don't like it. It's upsetting, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you do about it, though? The political parties are pretty entrenched. Reform is hard. And there's all that. There's some residual concern, probably, about a potential you know, return of conflict. The Civil War was you know, a couple decades ago, so it's not really that relevant to a modern political context. But uh, there is always that threat that it could come back if tensions between the different factions and political coalitions were to be exacerbated uh, one way or the other, you know, however it might happen. If we have anybody from Lebanon or somebody familiar with Lebanese politics, please, please do correct me on any of this that I might be getting wrong. I would certainly welcome criticism on any of this. <clears throat> Again, I'm not super well-versed in Middle Eastern history, so... This is just based off of my this is based off of my intermittent reading over the past 10, 10 15 years. So I'll, I'll try to do my best here, but definitely please jump in and correct me uh, if you have uh, information. Uh, so let's see here. So okay, let's let's get to the meat of the matter here. Uh, what happened recently were allegations, I guess this would have been like a month or two ago, thereabouts. There were allegations of a shortage of banks, sorry, there were allegations of a shortage of dollars at banks in Lebanon. Now, notice I don't say shortage of currency. I'm not saying that they didn't have like any money, specifically U.S. dollars. There was an accusation made that uh, banks in Lebanon of all sorts didn't have as many U.S. dollars as they said they did. And that's a big deal. Because in Lebanon, like a lot of co developing countries, uh, U.S. dollars are generally the currency you use in order to engage in international trade. And that's important, especially for a small country, because if you're a small country, you probably don't produce most of what you consume. You probably import a lot. So it's important to have access to U.S. dollars in order to facilitate that. So when there were accusations that banks in Lebanon didn't have enough U.S. dollars to facilitate that trade, that got to be a problem. Now, the central bank was not in question. Uh, well, actually, it was, it was part of the allegation, but it was solid. Its finances were actually good. Uh, but really, the commercial banks were the problem, you know, just the privately owned banks in Lebanon. <clears throat> and um, they had been squeezed for a while. They actually did have a shortage of U.S. dollars, and it was because of a range of negative economic factors in Lebanon. One, there had been a fall in remittances. Uh, if you don't know what a remittance is, that's where somebody in a country goes to another country to work and then sends some of the money they make there back to their old country. That's called a remittance, and it's a very important source of revenue for a lot of developing countries. So Lebanon, developing country, has a number of people that leave Lebanon to work overseas, you know, sometimes in 
uh, blue collar work, you know, as maids or what have you in uh, some GCC states. Others go to Europe to work in white collar jobs, etc. you know, when they can get them. So basically, long story short, lots of money is coming into Lebanon from remittances. It's propping up the economy, propping up banks. But as the global economy has slowed, uh, there's been a fall in remittances, and that's been hurting the financial health of these banks and reducing the number of U.S. dollars available. Uh, let's see. So there's also been sanctions on Hezbollah. Hezbollah, obviously, very important politically, but also a player internationally as far as Israel and the regional security situation. Uh, unsurprisingly, the U.S. categorizes Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, and they've been putting more sanctions on as tensions with Iran has been uh, heating up over the past few years. There's also been a fall in foreign aid uh, that had to do with the government failing to implement ec economic reforms that it had promised in order uh, to get that aid. Uh, basically, the aid was conditioned on economic reform. The economic reform was not delivered, so no aid, or at least a reduction in aid. And as that happened, there was, a, as a result, less U.S. dollars coming into the financial system. Uh, apparently, there's $11 billion in aid that's waiting for these reforms. So the, that's a pretty significant chunk of change that would help them. But uh, <clears throat> because the government has been dragging its feet on the reforms that are conditioned, uh, on the conditioned reforms, rather, uh, that hasn't been unlocked yet. So for these reasons, the financial sector is not in great health, and there's a particular shortage of U.S. dollars. Now, regardless of the shortage, the expectation that there would be a shortage, based on the allegation, uh, led to a spike in the black market exchange rate in Lebanon. That is to say, uh, the official exchange rate that is to say, the official exchange rate that the central bank was exchanging U.S. dollars uh, for the local currency at was different than the rate that you could get out on the street. You know, there are, in a lot of developing countries, there are money changers that just operate on the street or, you know, in different areas, and you can just come up to them and exchange uh, U.S. dollars or whatever hard currency you have for local currency or vice versa. And uh, as it was, the local currency was uh, becoming devalued, uh, and the U.S. dollar was becoming more valuable, in, uh, relatively speaking, as a result of this fear that there was a shortage in the country. <clears throat> so this created an arbitrage opportunity uh, for, the, for that reason, because there was a difference in the exchange rates, and uh, that exacerbated things, because people could uh, take their money out of uh, the bank, that is to say their money in the local currency, they could go to the central bank uh, and exchange it for U.S. dollars, and then they could take it to the black market and get a whole shit ton of local currency in exchange. You could also do vice versa. You know, if you've got U.S. dollars, uh, you could, well, I guess you wouldn't do that, but basically you could exploit that difference in values, the official rate of the central bank and the the fact that it was different than the black market rate and make a decent profit. You know, that's what an arbitrage means. So as a result of that arbitrage opportunity, a lot of people started doing that, and that actually exacerbated the shortage of U.S. dollars because uh, now more people are trying to exchange them, and that's putting more pressure on the local currency as well. So uh, in order to staunch that, commercial banks had to implement withdrawal limits. They limited the amount of money you could withdraw at one time. Uh, again, that stopped the outflow of money coming out of the banks and entering the black market. 
So the result of the withdrawal limit is that there was an actual shortage. You know, regardless of whether or not the shortage had been real in the first place, the expectation drove the arbitrage opportunity, worsened the difference in exchange rates. And then the commercial banks had to respond by creating withdrawal limits that actually did limit the number of U.S. dollars in circulation because people just couldn't get the money out of the bank anymore. Uh, as a side note here, this really illustrates the importance of expectations to uh, economies. Expectations are a big deal. So, you know, imagine, for example, if there actually was no shortage at all of U.S. dollars in uh, Lebanon's banks, which could have happened, the mere fact that expectations had changed in this way would have still meant the commercial banks would have had to implement withdrawal limits. It still would have meant the black market exchange rate was different. There would have been an arbitrage opportunity and there would have been pressure on the banks correspondingly. So that's the power of expectations and the power of markets in turn. So that said, so the end result of all of this is that Lebanon's currency devalued and US dollars became hard to find. And that was a big problem for importers, especially people who imported fuel and wheat. Uh, they needed dollars to import those goods. And in turn, because they needed US dollars to import them, they started demanding that their, cons that their customers pay them in US dollars. They hadn't done that before, before they could take local currency from their customers and then just exchange it. Uh, for U.S. dollars and then import what they needed correspondingly. But with U.S. dollars short, they couldn't do that. So they either stop importing completely or they start getting U.S. dollars from the customers. Now, if you're a customer, that's a problem because you probably don't have a lot of U.S. dollars and getting them is going to be expensive. So in response to this, bakeries and fuel stations actually went on strike because uh, they basically just couldn't carry out their business. Uh, you know, if they could get any U.S. dollars at all, it still would have been at a premium and they would have been paying more. So this is a big problem for people who sell fuel, which obviously everybody uses, if only to gas, if only to gas up their car, but also to fuel up electricity generators, uh, among other things. You know, just any, any, a number of things use fuel, suffice to say. Uh, but also, uh, wheat is an important food source that obviously gets turned into bread and whatnot. So that's a major food stuff over there. Uh, that also puts pressure on people. So it's not only the people who make uh, the bread and uh, refine the fuel, it's everybody. So not only did these uh, these institutions go on strike, you know, everybody is kind of on board with it because they see prices going up uh, on account of the lack of U.S. dollars and the lack of ability to start to continue importing the same amount of goods. <clears throat> So all told, significant currency devaluation, and the result is significant inflation. And that not only hit consumers and upset them, but it also hit government, government finances. Uh, it meant that the money, the tax revenue that they were gathering did not go as far. That is to say, the real value uh, of the government's tax revenue fell because of the inflation. And the government's finances were not exactly in great shape already. So the government needs to generate more revenue to try to make up for the shortfall. So it tries to do this by passing taxes on tobacco, taxes on fuel. There's tax, there's, there's fuel taxes again. Um, but they also tried to pass new taxes on voice over internet protocol communication services. That's uh, VoIP. I think that's what VoIP stands for. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but they tried to pass a tax on VoIP communication services. And, uh, you know, the key case in point was, uh, I think, WeChat. 
is what it's called. You know, one of the main main forms of communication in Lebanon. And that was really uh, what broke people. That you know, the people in Lebanon were already very upset about the inflation. They were upset about government corruption. They were upset about uh, the government's inability to deal with the problem. You know, certainly the taxes were upsetting, but the fact that the government would try to tax WeChat really pushed people over the edge. And the comment that I read uh, was that WeChat was one of the few things in Lebanon that actually worked. <laughs> so the idea that the government would tax it just seemed outrageous. So it, it just felt to a lot of Lebanese, from what I've read, like overreach on the part of the government. And that just was on top of years of disenchantment with the government, uh, the government's performance in general. So that's when the protests really broke out and got started. So just to give you an idea of uh, the health of the Lebanese economy at the time uh, and the degree to which, you know, the taxes, tax increases and the inflation were exacerbating pre-existing issues. Some of those pre-existing issues included 25% unemployment, uh, including 36 uh, percent youth unemployment, which is very high. 27% of the population is under the poverty line. Uh, debt to GDP ratio is 150%. Mind you, 100% thereabouts is roughly the red flag point. That's pretty much the threshold beyond which financial markets start getting really wary about lending to you. Uh, there's also 1 million some Syrian refugees in Lebanon, which is a big problem for the government since those people need assistance, the government has to help pay for refugee camps, etc. So that's stressing finances as well as the local economy, since you have a whole shit ton of new workers entering the market, uh, which can have an effect on wages. And uh, also the aforementioned poor public services. So to give you an idea of uh, the problems that Lebanese face with poor public services, some of the problems include daily power cuts, which would be super annoying, as you can imagine, uh, but is also problematic if you have a manufacturing, uh, well, a factory of some kind. You know, if you produce something, uh, you need electricity to power your equipment. So if you have intermittent power cups, power cuts, that can really screw with your uh, timetable. The result, generally, for a lot of people is that they just have to buy lots of generators uh, to have available as a backup. So let's see: daily power cuts, a lack of safe drinking water. Uh, absent public health care, there's not a, you know, Lebanon is kind of a poor country, so not a whole lot of health care support there. Uh, and also finally here, intermittent and weak internet connections. So that's not great for Lebanon's tech sector or for people who need or rely on uh, the internet. So all or of those... Or the gaming scene. Huh? Or the gaming scene. Well, yeah, that too. It's probably not a whole lot of Twitch streamers out of Lebanon. But uh, all of those are public services and all of them have somewhat subpar delivery uh, in Lebanon, delivery and management, I should say. So that's a look at the Lebanese economy and how it contributed here uh, to the crisis. So to give you an idea of what's been happening since then, uh, Prime Minister Hariri, this is a different Hariri. Uh, this is actually, this Prime Minister Hariri is actually the son of the other Hariri who was assassinated back in 2004 or so. Uh, he kind of came to power after his father died. You know, a lot of the political parties are pretty nepotistic, if that's a word. Well, you're referencing nepotism, so you're favoring the next generation, your direct line. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, 
they basically just gave the party to him. So, you know, he was the next, like you say, next in line. So Prime Minister Hariri steps down. Uh, he wanted he wanted to uh, take steps to de-escalate. That was sort of his uh, response to the protests. Uh, you know, I think a lot of political parties in Lebanon have kind of struggled to really coherently respond to a challenge that is not really sectarian in nature. You know, broad segments of the Lebanese public are supporting the protests. And uh, as a result, there's not really an easy way for sectarian political parties to kind of play the sectarian card to try to create divisions among them or otherwise buy them off. So some of the concessions so far, uh, lower pay for politicians, that was an easy one, but also doesn't really mean much. Uh, they also repealed the WeChat tax, or more accurately, the VOIP tax. The government also promised to reform the economy to get the promised aid. That was the, uh, what, 11 billion some dollars in aid that was still on the table. So in order to get that, they had to promise new taxes on banks in order to raise revenue. And they also had to cut the deficit in their 2020 budget to 0.6%, which was down from 7% in 2019. Pretty significant fall there. It's not easy to make big adjustments like that politically. So it's kind of helpful to have a big crisis that you can say, hey, I have no choice. Uh, otherwise, people are going to eat you alive for uh, cutting the budget like that or for raising taxes like that, for that matter. Uh, Hezbollah, like I think most of the institutional parties in Lebanon, opposes the protests, but they've been particularly vociferous. Uh, the leader of Hezbollah, I don't have his name, but the, the leader of Hezbollah argues that uh, the protests are foreign supported. That's pretty normal card to play. Pretty much In the Middle East, it's pretty common to see the opponent being accused of being a foreign agent of some kind. Uh, Hezbollah has also attacked at least one protester camp. There's been some violence. Uh, party thugs come out, push people around, you know, violently attack people, try to disrupt the protests and whatnot. So that kind of brings us to the present. Uh, I haven't updated this in a while, so there might have been more recent events, but roughly this is where we are with the protests ongoing and with the establishment political party is kind of struggling to really substantively respond. And, you know, to kind of comment on that, it's not really clear just what can resolve Lebanon's problems. Uh, you know, the kind of problems Lebanon has are just inherently difficult to solve. Um, you know, because of the country's instability, it's seen as a risky investment. So, you know, it's just hard to resolve that, uh, you know, dangerous neighborhood. It, it's a dangerous region in general, and Hezbollah being an officially recognized terrorist group and being the principal power in Lebanon, all of that kind of does not really help Lebanon's image as a secure place to put investment. Uh, also, Lebanese, Lebanon's economy is probably a little too dependent on tourism, which is, you know, you, you can develop an economy with tourism to a degree, but it's not a great pathway, and it definitely comes with problems. So that's not really a great economic driver for them. Uh, also, it's just culturally speaking, in terms of political culture, it's really difficult to fight patronage politics. You know, even if you can get people upset at the government and get them protesting, sometimes the solution that, to that for the protesters is not uh, liberalized governance, good governance, best practices. For a, a lot of times, it's just uh, the government redistributing, uh, redistributing patronage resources to encompass them. You know, before they were left out, but now they protested, so now they get paid off, and then maybe that takes the wind out of the protests or even, you know, gets rid of it completely. 
just at a cultural level, it's just really difficult to handle political corruption. That's just a very thorny issue. Uh, also, the government doesn't really do anything to inculcate a positive business environment in Lebanon. You know, the attitude of the government in Lebanon historically has apparently been to treat the private sector like a source of revenue rather than as a, or an organic entity that needs to be cultivated. So for that reason, uh, it's, that also contributes to Lebanon not being the most attractive investment target. So let's see. Uh, one thing they could do is to implement some deeper free market reforms to facilitate that kind of pro-business climate. Uh, but managing fiscal health, you know, that by itself isn't really going to be enough. You know, uh, they're going to have to probably do more. You know, corruption is the main thing really at the root of the problem, you know, for public services and the economy, that's, that's holding back the economy writ large. And that's, again, a cultural thing that's hard to unwind. And I already talked about the, you know, the garbage collection thing. Uh, so I think it may be that they can, uh, that is to say the political parties, they may just try to buy off the opposition, the protests rather. Uh, but I think part of the problem, and really part of the problem that led to this point, is that there's only so much money that you can use on patronage. There's only so many tax dollars in the economy uh, that you can use for patronage. And uh, as patronage networks have shrunk relative to the population, Lebanon is a very young population uh, with a lot of young people. So a lot of those people just don't ha just have no vested interest in established patronage networks. So that being the case it's going to be really hard for them to just buy them off, I think. So it's possible that they'll try. Uh, maybe they'll just water down the amount of money that's going to individual people to try to sp spread it more thinly, and that does the trick. But really, that just kicks the can down the road, since Lebanon's population is still growing relatively rapidly, I think. So I think there's going to be a reckoning of some kind. That seems likely, if not in the short term, then at least the medium term because they just can't really cannibalize the public se sector much further beyond this point. Now, what that looks like, whatever that reckoning looks like, that's, that's unclear. That's kind of the thing to watch for. How does a sectarian patronage-plagued political system handle uh, protests that are not themselves sectarian in nature? That's something we kind of haven't really seen before, I think. That's kind of a new thing, so it'll be, it's a really interesting experiment to watch play out. You can only bribe people so much. So I think I went over a little bit. Or do we still have time? We've got nine minutes and 24 seconds. Oh, I snuck in. Okay. Yeah, like a boss. Oh, now I see it. Two hour. Okay. I forget about the uh, Zencaster counter up here. Yeah, today was really nice and focused. We just hit a couple zones really hard. The yeah. UK, India area, Lebanon. We even got some epic lawyer versus doctor battles this time. <laughs> Next time, tune in. The engineers are facing off against the bakers, surprisingly enough. <laughs> full on, full on uh, kickboxing in the streets. <laughs> yeah, we'll that's, see. That's oh, you funny. never know with the Middle East, anything can happen. <laughs> They're keeping it exciting for sure. <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, something to watch. Well, I don't know how much I can sneak in in 10 minutes here. 
because I did have some stuff on Bolivia. Bolivia has been interesting to watch. Uh, you know, the government was de facto overthrown, but the debate right now is whether or not it was a coup. So there's some question about that. I was a little skeptical it was a coup at first, but I've been kind of following it since then, and it, it's starting to feel a little bit more cooey to me. Mm-hmm. So I've got some notes on that that could be interesting to go through here. It's an interesting discussion, I think, if nothing else. But I don't think you can really conclusively say either that it was necessarily a coup. I don't really think it qualifies technically as a coup. But it does seem like there was an attempt to really uh, exploit discontent with the uh, Morales administration in order to have a change in government. But we can kind of get into that next time if we have time. Sounds good. I appreciate your time very much, sir. I appreciate you having me. It's always fun. Nice session as always. We're probably on episode like 60-something now. Probably 60-something. Sounds about right. Do you have any cool holiday plans? (sighs) Not really. Christmas dinner with the family and try to finish the podcast. I think I'm on episode... Seven. I finished. I posted episode seven, so I've got three more to go, and then I'll have all ten up, and then the damn thing will finally be done. But other than that, no substantive plans. I don't think. What about you? I always look forward to the waffles with strawberries and whipped cream. <laughs> That's what we have for Christmas breakfast. There you go. That sounds good. Yep. Well, cool, sir. I hope you have a great rest of your night sleep well this will be on the podcast check out agent smith on his own podcast through the who is it command for this ridiculously awesome conversational content we don't know everything but we do try to talk about stuff and get closer to the truth together until next weekend mr agent smith take care keep it real and have a good one you too thanks gg